You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. At 6.12, precisely. Zach Thompson died. And the earth fell silent. Zach Hobson, July 5th. One, there has been a malfunction in Project Flashlight with devastating results. Two, it seems I am the only person left on it. Parent? Oh. If the oscillations in the sun continue to increase at the present rate, the sun must collapse in a few days. If there's anybody out there at all, could you please contact me at home? Somebody come. I've been condemned to live. realized what was happening. We trusted them. They were on our side. <laughs> the white boss went with the rest of them. There's just you and me now. are a waste of time. You reckon the grid is balanced? Okay. We take the scene down, the grid curves. A Jeff Murphy film, The Quiet Earth. The end of the world is just the beginning. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. People, people who need people. <laughs> also with us this week is Keith Gordon. How can I talk that? I'm just glad to be back in the booth, but I'm not singing. This week we are looking at the 1985 apocalyptic feature, The Quiet Earth. Based on a book by Craig Harrison, the film tells the tale of a man who awakens one day to find that he's the last man on Earth. Or is he? If you haven't seen The Quiet Earth, and if the trailer that we played at the top of the show didn't spoil the movie for you, just go ahead, turn us off, track down a copy of the movie. It's one that I've had on DVD for many, many years, and you probably should too. That said, Keith, when was the first time you saw The Quiet Earth, and what did you think? I saw it was when it was in the theaters in the States. I was living in, I, uh, I was living in L.A. at the time, but... I feel like I saw it maybe when I was back in New York. I think I saw it the Quad Theater in New York, and I was really impressed by it because this was a time that I was just 
starting to move into filmmaking. And I, I, had, I had been a producer on a film, but I hadn't directed my first film quite yet. And I know that they'd done this film on a very limited budget. And I remember being really impressed by its intelligence, because I love intelligent science fiction, but also what they'd accomplished with, with very little money in terms of creating a, a very spooky and kind of wonderful world. And it stuck with me. You know, I mean, it's 30 years ago now. And a lot of films have not stuck with me for 30 years. And yet when you brought this up now, you know, it was 1985 when it came out. It's 2015 now. And you brought this up and I immediately went, oh, yeah, that, that film I'd want to see again, I'd want to talk about again. So it, it has a real haunting power to it. And I felt it then and I still feel it. I didn't see it until you had me watch it for the show. And it was a treat for me because there's a lot going on in here. And it's interesting to see other uh, Kiwi filmmakers beyond Peter Jackson. Nothing against Peter Jackson, but, you know, us here in the States, we often get into foreign film and we think there's only like one or two guys in any country that's doing anything. And it's always nice to uh, have your horizons broadened in that way. It's kind of weird that this is actually the second Jeff Murphy film that we've talked about. We talked about Free Jack a few years ago with our friend Fred Fritz, and we tried to track down Mr. Murphy back then, and it was just kind of serendipitous that we managed to track him down for now, for for talking about this movie. Um, I think he was a little bit more happy to talk about The Quiet Earth than to talk about Free Jack. We've definitely not talked about Kiwi filmmakers very much on here. I think I saw... The Quiet Earth, definitely didn't see it in theaters. I think I saw it on VHS, and I want to say that Siskel and Ebert kind of turned me on to this film. This was kind of one of those movies that you would see on at the movies when they were talking about sleeper films or whatever. This one really kind of struck a chord with me. I was maybe, I don't know how old at the time, and just uh, really kind of liked the post-apocalyptic thing and the different variations of it. And this one, Last Man on Earth kind of story, I was really up for this. And like he said, yeah, I remember I, when I went back and rewatched this one a few months ago for the show, it was like I had seen it just the day before. I remembered it that well. So it was great to experience it again. And it really is a very, very haunting film. And haunting is a hard thing to pull off. You know, I mean, I think, I think a lot of films go for it. I don't know how many actually achieve it. You know, I don't know if this is a perfect film, but it, it, it pulls that off. And that's a really high bar to, to attain. Yeah, it could go wrong so easily. And it's nice that they just kind of keep it on track. And really, so much of the film rests on the shoulders of Bruno Lawrence as the last man on Earth, as this uh, Zach character who... We just follow him around. I mean, he's on screen alone for 35 minutes. And to have an actor, and really, he wasn't a trained actor. He was more of a musician before he became an actor. And he pulls it off, man. I am right there with this guy. And I want to see what he does. And I am following him every step of the way. And what I really like is that he goes through so many changes in that first 35 minutes, it's almost like the movie could end right around that time, and I would be fine just if this was a short about this guy and what he does when he wakes up and no one else is around. And that there's more to it is just kind of a bonus. Yeah, well, for me, that's really the strongest part of the movie. I mean, I, the, the part of the film I truly love, I mean, I truly love the ending, which I guess everybody does. It's wonderfully ambiguous, and I don't want to give away much here, you know, if people haven't seen it, but it's the ending is really, really haunting. But to me, the first act of the film where he is alone is the strongest 
big section of the movie. In some ways, I would love to have seen this film just where he was just alone the whole time. I feel like filmmakers, you know, never do that. And you know, whether it was this film or all the way on the other end of the scale, Wally or whatever, I, I would, I would, I find those things where you've got a character alone dealing with that loneliness is can be really fascinating and it was done so well here his psychological trauma is dealt with so interestingly and while i think it's still a very interesting film once he's no longer all alone i I feel like that is the most inventive and original and and haunting section of the movie that's what's interesting to me is that he goes through these various stages and as you were saying there's really no one for him to talk to except he i think he kind of talks to himself from time to time but he goes through kind of like all the stages that i think anyone would go through where there's no one around so it's like oh i can break into the rich people's houses and hang out there and eat all this fine food and i can break into the store and like get fancy suits and i can do all this stuff and then eventually kind of gets to a point where he's like and this isn't all that interesting because I'm just by myself all the time. And there's there's no one to, I guess, in one way, hang out with and enjoy this with or, like, revolt against in some way or be a pain in the ass to them, you know? So he's just sort of stuck and he keeps looking for people. And the one thing that's amazing to me is that obviously this was shot in a relatively big city, and some of the scenes where there's no one on the streets and even in the distance, you don't see things, you don't see planes or anything. I mean, they did a really nice job setting up these shots and setting up these scenes, you know, shutting down sections of town in order to get that, to make it look like that. Well, you don't even get birds flying, which I find to be just terrific. I mean, the movie starts, the movie begins with an amazing shot of the sun rising and with that you get the birds flying across and everything and it just is a normal sunrise but it it just looks so beautiful being shot with the water and the reflection of the sun and everything and just this really really haunting score that comes out comes through the rest of the film and and always works for me that's really nice too that they don't even have the birds and what you were talking about with uh him going through all these stages the one thing that he has on top of everything else like as if it could be more being the last person on the face of the earth or what he thinks is is that he thinks that he's responsible and basically he he is partially responsible for what has happened to the entire world so not only does he have to deal with being alone but he has to deal with all the ramifications of what if i was a part of this that's what's so wonderfully complicated about it because it leads him to very strange psychological places and i think the guilt is a big part of that along with the aloneness there's a sequence which is probably the best thing in the film it it may arguably is is there's a scene where he sets up stand-up figures of everybody from you know charlie chaplin to uh adolf hitler and sort of speaks to them all as if he was the ruler of the world and and to me it's sort of this fascinating portrait of somebody's desperate attempt to make sense out of living in a nightmare and and it's it's just I feel like we've seen a lot of end of the world type things but there's something about the psychological realism of of the quirkiness and the oddness of what this man is going through and how he tries to deal with it that just gives it a whole other layer than what we've seen in a million kind of Hollywood films about the end of the world dedicated all my scientific knowledge and skill to projects 
which I knew could be put to evil purposes. For the common good, they said. How easy to believe in the common good when that belief is rewarded with status, wealth, and power! How hard to believe in the common good. When every fiber of my being tells me that the awesome forces I have helped to create have been put into the hands of madmen! I've been gay by the bottom of my own corruption! Is it not fitting then that I be president? Of this quiet earth? I don't know if I was just kind of searching for something to relate to as I was watching this, but... During that scene, I kept thinking of a face in the crowd in that applause machine that Dusty Rhodes has and just the way that that plays in one part of the film where he's on top of the world and then the other part of the film where he's it's basically crashing around him. And to see Bruno Lawrence up there with that applause thing. And then also when he... <laughs> Because we forgot to mention that at one point he tries on this woman's dress or slip or whatever it is, and he basically wears that for you know however much of the film, and him standing on that terrace and addressing those people below and having the the applause and all this stuff going on, I was really reminded of Avita quite a bit. That's good, especially with <laughs> yeah, you know, especially with him in that dress. Because I kept thinking to myself, I'm like, why is he wearing the dress? And then I go, well, why not? Because there's no one around to tell him that he looks ridiculous. There's no one around to go, oh, you're you must be gay or something because you're wearing a dress. There's no society anymore. It's just him. He can do whatever he wants. So he's running around with a shotgun, and at one point ends up in a church and starts firing off the shotgun at the crucifix of Christ. And I was just like, well, that's that's an interesting little bit of symbolism. You know, I guess if there's no society, I guess there's no need for the the old idea of religion, too, at the same time. If you don't come out, I'll shoot the kid. It's the old uh, National Lampoon, you know. Now, uh, you, you buy the, don't buy this magazine, I'll shoot this dog kind of deal. This whole opening bit, I mean, there's the, he gets trapped in the lab, he's trying to figure out what's going on, he has to ex- cause the explosion and get out and trying to figure out what's going on, and yeah, he goes a little crazy, he's putting on the dress, he's addressing the, the cardboard cutouts, and he's got the the huge stuffed ostrich and then him on the uh the steamroller and when he rolls over that baby carriage it's kind of like a a really nice turning point in that scene i you know i don't think i was feeling it to that point but at that point i was like well what if there's a baby in that thing you know and then he goes over and checks and there isn't and for like just a brief second you think oh man maybe he really did do something horrible there and then you realize no he's still alone and by himself there's a lot of dark humor in the film it's again especially in that first in that first 30 to 40 minutes and i think that's ironically part of what makes it emotionally powerful because instead of being sort of just grim about the end of the world 
it, it accepts the surreal, quasi-funny weirdness of being alone in the world. And and sometimes I feel like in, a, in, in, in drama, literature, whatever, it's when you go against the obvious that you actually get more emotional power. And the very fact that the film lets it be kind of almost loopy at moments is what makes it feel very real and very disturbing. I love the whole thing where he goes in and records. It feels like almost every end-of-the-world movie has the whole idea of going in and recording a message and playing that over the radio for the rest of the world to hear and trying to find you know if, if there are any survivors out there. Really kind of reminded me of uh, Night of the Comet with the, uh, the DJ and all that kind of stuff. And when they go in, they find that it's uh, the DJ is just on tape. <laughs> so, But I love how he goes in and he's got the, the one message and then when he decides to move up in the world it's just like the next message that he's just like I'm now at this new apartment come find me there and he finally kind of falls into a little bit of a routine he's been reborn and I do like the whole idea of him coming out of the water and kind of you know shucking away everything that is has kind of held him back before and now he's I guess he's kind of at peace with being the last man on earth. And of course that's when Joanne shows up, Alison Rutledge, who really kind of brings a nice energy to the role. She is filled with a lot of interesting observations, her whole theory of uh, faces and how malleable they are and nice character. I like the chemistry that they have together and it works for me, this kind of middle part of the movie where it's these two people kind of doing an, an Adam and Eve type of thing, but not really, you know, immediately falling into bed with one another. There's a little bit of tension going on there, but you know, eventually that they'll get together. The one thing I like when she's introduced and I can't remember if they talk beforehand, but they end up embracing and just the idea that, that he's had no contact and that she's been out there and she's had no contact. And it's not even like you were saying, it's not even sexual. It's just, I need to touch another person. I need to know what that's like again. And just that moment I thought, I thought was really great. I also love the reveal of when they find, when they finally do sleep together and the relationship finally does move into a kind of sexual romantic mode. It's a wonderful reveal because you don't see it happen, which again would have been the more obvious thing with, you know, it's really, you see her walk out of the room, she's brought in breakfast in bed, and suddenly you just see, she's wearing this cute little kind of, you know, unif- unif- you know almost maid uniform feeling thing, and as she walks away, there's her bare butt. And that image tells you everything about how the relationship has changed, and it's very funny and very sexy and very human, but it, it lets it be a surprise rather than, oh, here's the sex scene or here's the romance scene. It, it's kind of this wonderful, oh, well, I guess... I guess they've moved on to the next level now. And and I just remember really just finding that scene very human and very funny. And then it's followed by, of course, you know, he looks at her butt and decides to jump out of bed to follow her and immediately scalds himself with the hot coffee she's brought up. And again, it's those little human touches that to me separate this film from other similar films thematically that I've seen. It, it's, it's all those moments that aren't the obvious. It, it's not just on story. It's not just on point. It's not just, okay, let's get to the next plot twist. It's the things between those plot twists where it's people being people in this very weird situation. And that, to me, opens the film up so that, you know, you don't have to be a sci-fi buff to love it or you don't have to, you know, it, it's it's really about human behavior. And really what brings a lot of the human behavior to a head is the introduction of the Oppie character who's played by Pete Smith who comes in and – 
his reveal is is very interesting as well. The whole idea of uh, Zach driving down the street, and at one point, this truck kind of rolls out behind him, and you know he's looking to see what has happened, why has this happened, and they, they kind of do a nice little fake out, like he opens up the the truck and there's nobody in there, and then Oppie is revealed, and Oppie is a um, Maori fella, and so we've got not only the whole idea of the love triangle that's going to happen because we know it's going to happen <laughs> between Oppie and Zach and Joanne. But then also we have the racial tension going on between the Maori guy, the white woman and the white guy. So how is this going to play out? And I like that you don't just have the two guys and the girl, you also had the race stuff in, in here to kind of add that extra level of tension that, that happens between them. And there's one part where Zach, because not only do you have all this going on, but then we kind of get this ticking clock of what has happened before with all the people disappearing might happen again. He's kind of figuring things out, Zach, throughout this whole film. And, he finally figures out, okay, at a certain point, this whole effect is going to happen again. I'm not really sure what's going to what's going to occur at this point. So we have that clock. There's a great moment where he's saying to Oppie, like, Look, it's complicated enough for people like me without trying to explain to people like you. People like what? I think he means someone like me, as in I'm a scientist, versus this guy who's kind of a thug. But I definitely see that other level of a white guy explaining to a black guy, I don't have time to explain to a person like you. So I like that there's kind of these multiple levels happening. Haven't you noticed? Things have changed, really. The white boss went with the rest of them. There's just you and me now. Well, and that's one of the strengths, again, of the film is that, that the, the racial issue is really interesting. But it, because they don't really talk about it explicitly very much... It's just there in the midst of everything, and that, the example you decided is a great one because it's everything is like, does that is that a racial overtone there? Is there, and and I imagine again that that's much more honest than suddenly them having a rap session about you know how their their feelings about racial differences. And yet, I feel like if that film was made today and made in the states, you'd have to have some scene where they confronted each other about you know their past. And here, it's just sort of it's just there, and it's it doesn't. It doesn't need to be said out loud because it's so obvious that it's part of the the dangerousness of the dynamics that are going on. I also really like how the, the, the Bruno Lawrence character is nothing like any scientist you ever see in a movie. You know, every time there's a scientist in the movie, they look the same, they've got glasses, they this. This guy is kind of a, a somewhat hunky guy physically. I mean, not like sexy hunky, but like big. I mean, he doesn't come off like, hi, I'm a scientist. He doesn't come off as super intellectual. And yet... In real life, when I've known scientists, not all of them look like movie scientists. And I really appreciated that That you might think this guy was a writer. You might think he was a rock and roll musician, which I guess Bruno Lawrence started as. You might – you know, there's nothing about him that goes, look, science guy. And and I kind of felt that about, about all three actors is they weren't – they weren't cast in a way where you go, oh, I know who this person is just by looking at them. And, and that's, again, one more layer that I think Jeff Murphy did a great job of in terms of not making these people just into, into – uh, stereotypes or one-note characters. Which is funny that you say he doesn't look like a science guy because when the Oppie character showed up, I go, wow, Neil deGrasse Tyson is in this. (laughs) (laughs) 
And I also thought of when he showed up, it was the it was the old uh, Godard quote, you know, all I need is two guys, a girl and a gun. And there's your film. And that, that's what you end up having with the three of them. What I also liked about him, and it sounds like I'm part of some sort of like group therapy thing going on here because I'm really about the embrace here of, uh, of people, is that he comes off when he's first introduced as like a street tough, as kind of a hood. He's got, you know, his leather jacket. He's got a, he's got a Uzi. He's got guns and all this stuff. And he's really sort of like, I don't know if I should like kill you or not to to the Zach character and then once they meet up with Joanne in the in like the park there there's like this group hug so so he really we we learn real quick with him that there's this level of sort of uh dangerous kind of like I don't know maybe like street hood kind of thing going on but there's still that there's still that tenderness underneath that can be seen and he's willing to even share with the guy who, you know, in the beginning when he first meets him there, uh, he's, he's not too sure about. I think that Oppie has the best line in the film when Joanne, of course, like I said, there's some tension going on between the three of them. And when Joanne's just like, you know, not if you're the last man on earth and Oppie's I'm working on it, I think is probably my favorite line in the film. <laughs> <laughs> so we have all this stuff going on and we also have, as you know, Zach has been studying the effect, and I think that's what he calls it, either in the book or, or on the, in the film, is the effect. We also have why these three people, why did these folks survive? And I really like the revelation of what they were doing when the event occurred, why they are the ones that are left. And I think that's really interesting, just the reasoning behind that. I mean, you know, we always have to have, in science fiction films, the why, you know. And I like that the why is, it's there, but it's not overdone, and it's not hitting you over the head with it. And even when it comes to the effect, there's some scientific mumbo-jumbo going on. But really, we get just enough to take us through the film. They aren't pulling out the blackboard and explaining things. They're not taking a piece of paper and poking a hole in two sides of it and showing us how quantum physics works or something. So, yeah, luckily, Oppie doesn't become Neil deGrasse Tyson and and tell us exactly everything that's going on in the film. That's the beauty of the film is that it leaves some questions unanswered and by the end leaves some big questions unanswered and gives you room to – because I sometimes think the more you explain something in science fiction, the more almost inevitably you sit in the audience and start to go, now, wait a minute. But if that was – it's just human. By leaving things a little bit looser and, and by having even the Zach you know, not entirely sure about why things are going on the way they are. And, and the point is sort of made that, yes, he was part of this project that created this effect, but – he was kept somewhat in the dark. I mean, the idea was the U.S. government sort of was setting this up, and that the Kiwi part of it was just a small piece of a bigger puzzle. So he doesn't really fully know what's happened and why. He can only you know guess based on his knowledge as a scientist, but that really helps avoid some of the worst of the, now that's silly feeling, and, and leaves you open to possibilities, and, and, the, and the possibilities at the end, end broaches. Well, that's the thing that I always appreciated about the the early George Romero zombie films, you know, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead specifically was it was never really explained. So it was up to the audience to try and figure out exactly maybe what 
occurred or maybe that's not even the point because as I've told people with the zombie film, at least when I read something like Dawn of the Dead, it's about the interactions between people under stress. That's really what it's about. And it's kind of the same situation with this where you're in this unusual situation. You don't necessarily know what caused it and you just got to deal with it and sort of how do people rise and fall to that kind of occasion. And even when Zach comes up with the quote-unquote solution to the problem, he doesn't know. Was it a solution? Was it not a solution? I mean, that's another nice vagary with the end of the film is we don't necessarily know what has occurred. And I know, you know some people have said, oh, well, of course it's this, that, and the other thing. But I like that there's this open-ended question, and you bring what you want to bring to it. And you know, this is the perfect kind of movie for – going out for coffee or a beer after the film and just shooting the shit about it. Because I think there's a lot of so many great things happening in it and not spoon feeding the audience. I feel like most people watching this movie will have an answer. They just may not have the same answer. It doesn't feel like just like, well, what the hell was that? It feels like an answer, but how you interpret that is going to be different. And I think that's a very interesting thing because I mean, and I love all different kinds of non-answers. I mean, 2001 is probably my, favorite film and that really is more of a okay i don't even know where to start sort of this is more of a oh it's so and so but then like i watched the film again with my wife and she had a somewhat different interpretation than i did but to each of us there was an answer that made sense but even just knowing remembering what reviews said and remembering people i talked about when the film was out we all sort of if you went out with coffee with five people you'd get five different interpretations where everybody was sure they were right but they might not any of them agree did Leonardo DiCaprio's top fall over? Did I hear that before the end credit music started? That's the last one I can think of where people are just debating left and right about that and yeah. you know, I, overdoing it. I remember working in um, – and this isn't about the, the whole um, sort of the plotting and what caused it. This was more about the ending. I remember working in a theater when John Sayles' Limbo was playing and just how it ends abruptly and just the groans from people. And I was just like, it's the name of the title of the film. Hello. What did you expect? Yeah, I, I think I might have told you about the last Terrence Malick film. I think it was the last one that was out, uh, the one with uh, Ben Affleck. And at one point, the movie just kind of fades to black. And I think everybody was ready to get up and go. And then the movie comes back on and you could actually hear the groans. It was just like, oh, we thought that was the end. <laughs> <laughs> There's more end to this film. <laughs> and this was like Malik fans in the audience. So I was like, okay, at least it's not just me. The one thing I felt I could say more about because I was so impressed by it was, again, the way they stretched budget, the sort of production design of the film and the look of the film. I mean, the film was made for a million dollars and granted a million dollars back then was more than it is now. But it's still, you know, here you have the aftermath of an airplane crash or jet plane crash into a building with huge parts of the plane left behind and burning jet engines and seats. And I mean, things that, that you would think of as huge things to create and I don't quite know how they did some of it, but they managed to, on on what was a limited budget, create some scenes of pretty impressive scope. I mean, they they, they picked and chose; they weren't all that that way. But this has some pretty impressive uh, visual stuff in it, and I think that's one of the most interesting things about the film. Because when people hear, "Oh, it's a little New Zealand film," you you might not think about that. But I, I was seeing it again. I was like, "Yeah, man, they pulled off some pretty impressive things with no money, and I assume not a lot of time." 
Yeah, I'd, I don't want to pick on anybody, but it felt like, you know, the catering budget for World War Z probably is what paid for this film. This film, 30 years you know, ago, I saw this roughly, and it is still with me so much, whereas it, I guess it's the, the plane crash that brought it to mind. Like World War Z, I saw that just two years ago or whenever it was out, and I barely remember it. I just remembered as you're saying plane crash. Oh yeah, I guess there was a plane crash in that movie. Whereas with this, every little thing, I mean so many powerful shots, some great dialogue, the music, the acting, all of these things have stuck with me for so long. And you're right, and I think it is because of the creative ways that they overcame their budget and just the great, great storytelling. And really that's always what we come back to is What's the story? How well is it told? And is that what sticks with you? And I definitely think that it is with this one. Well, they avoided the conventions of, of independent or small films, interestingly, too, because, you know, they, that score, which is beautiful. I agree with you. I love that score. And it's a very big score. I mean, it feels very symphonic. Uh, it doesn't feel like it's all synthesized. Um, and it's very kind of full and rich. It doesn't feel like a guy sitting in a room on a computer created the music. It feels very like a score you'd have on a big film and that gives the film a certain grandeur and sweep and size and and you know i think that's a really a really strong choice that they made uh and i felt like through the whole film i, I felt like jeff murphy was refusing to give into the oh i don't have a lot of money so i'll just do it really tiny and you know keep my my, my scope very limited uh and and the fact that he did that and then really pulled it off and found people a composer or whatever who could deliver with what must have been you know again no time no money and yet everybody did it. Maybe it's because the film industry there was young and people just wanted to be part of something good. But it's very, very impressive on that level. So let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play three interviews. The first one is with Professor Jonathan Rayner, the author of Cinema Journeys of the Man Alone, the New Zealand and American Films of Jeff Murphy, which is one hell of a title, but it's a great book. Then we'll hear from Jeff Murphy himself. And finally, we'll hear from writer-producer Sam Pillsbury after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. For you, the listeners of the Projection Booth Podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a 30-day free trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. You can download 
The Android's Dream by John Scalzi, or another book of your choice for free by trying Audible.com, and it's yours to keep even if you cancel your subscription. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com forward slash projection booth. Again, that's audibletrial.com forward slash projection booth for your free audiobook. You love midnight movies, don't you? <laughs> but can you handle midnight movies 24 hours a day? Your death will be indescribable. Find out on Black Flag TV. <laughs> The first viral television on the web. Black Flag TV is entirely dedicated to haunting horror, science fiction, and cult movies. Broadcasting live, 24 hours a day, obscure independent movies and classic horror. Make Black Flag TV your sanctuary for the horror genre. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Visit us now. Blackflag.tv do you remember your first time? <laughs> the first time you fell in love <laughs> with horror. <laughs> Science fiction. <laughs> Post-apocalyptic fantasies. MVP Mutant Radio will help you rediscover your inner fan again as we talk you through the latest and greatest theatrical releases in horror. You're all going to die tonight. We can guide you to a new, better, happier you. Science fiction. Prometheus, are you seeing this? Big things have small beginnings. Mama is not the law. I am the law. And all out badassery. <laughs> we'll bring you interviews with independent filmmaking masterminds, as well as specials like Murder by Music and the Drunken New Year's Eve Mega Show. Listen online at www.mutantville.com or subscribe on iTunes. If you're a man, you don't cry about it. You take life, the ups and downs. If you're a real man, you never go down, you just stay up. The Mutantville players are ready to lead the art jihad against haterism and the forces of fandom. How did you get interested in the cinema of Jeff Murphy? Um, I think the first film I saw, funnily enough, was The Quiet Earth. I saw it as a as a student, I think, when not short, not long after it came out in the 1980s. And that was the first film of his I saw. And because of that, I think, when um, uh, Ian Conrad, who edited the Kakapo series of books on New Zealand cinema, he, he contacted me to talk about doing a, a small booklet on Murphy. And out of that, I, I caught up with the rest of his films. That was quite a while ago. I think it must have been 1997 or 1998, something like that. I wrote that. And so that was the first chance, really, to look at all of his films to, to date when he started making films in the States as well. That was, that was the point.
point, really, that I, I caught up with all of the, the both sides of his career. What was it about the quiet earth that kind of captured your imagination? Um, I think it was the kind of the, the unexpectedness of it. It was, um, it's a, uh, watching it again recently, it's, it's a very unexpected film. It takes some, several twists and turns that you don't really see coming, I think. And the fact that it, um, it's... Uh, there are other examples of, of fantasy or science fiction cinema, I think, where you have the depopulated planet or the empty city. But it's the, some of it is, is the, the oddity of Bruno Lawrence's character, I think, the way that he um, responds through, he goes through such a, a, a curious series of, of transformations, I think, from, from a cynic to a madman to, and then back to kind of idealist through the, the course of the film. I think that's, that's part of also what I found fascinating about it. And then looking at that in relation to the rest of Murphy's films in subsequent years, the way in which he draws these very powerful and driven but also very flawed male characters through all of his films. When you went back and you watched some of his early works, did you find any particular themes that he kind of revisited as he went along? Mm, that's a good one. And I think he's... Um, Within the context of the thing that uh, I ended up writing for the Kakapo series, I think there's a, a strong sense of, of isolation and alienation. And again, that's something which comes out as, a, as a, a very strong male and national characteristic, I think, through Murphy's characters, particularly in, uh, particularly in uh, what I think is his best film, which is Utu, and then also in, um, in The Quiet Earth. It's, there's a sense of kind of disenfranchisement or, or deliberate peripheralization from society, which you see in, in what was his most popular film, I think, in New Zealand, which is Goodbye Port Pie, which is a, in many ways a very um, light, in a way, and very jokey and very, very um, matey kind of film. But there's the same sense, I think, of being on the, on the edges of, of respectability and, on, on, and in, inevitably kind of against... Uh, propriety against normal standards, which I suppose you, you could very um, stereotypically say is a, is a kind of a Kiwi trait, but also is, is there in, my, in, in Murphy's films, I think, as a, as a distinctly masculine, non-conformist trait, which I think is, is something which binds his films together. What do you kind of see? You know, you mentioned the Kiwi trait. What do you kind of see as far as like the, I don't want you to go too broad. I'm not asking you to de define their national character, but as an outside observer, what have you kind of witnessed as far as uh, what it is like to experience life as a New Zealander? I think, well, what I think you see in movie films is, is a sense of improvisation, of self-reliance, of not so much a, a kind of a... Um, an, uh, an antagonism towards outsiders or, or non-islanders, but a, a strong sense, I suppose, of, of, of um, independence. And I think that's, that's what you see in Murphy's films as well. Again, I think that's, that's part of the way in which he draws his male characters as, as, as people who are un not unhappy to be alone, not, not flawed by a sense of, of separateness. Um, I think, again, that's the sort of thing that you see in the, um, to the strongest advantage in the, in the best films like Utu and, and, uh, and The Quiet Earth. But it's there in some of the American films as well, I think. You know, it's uh, um, in, a, in a very you know, peculiar way. I, I think I'm right in saying his, his most commercially successful film is, is Under Siege 2. Uh, and, and it might be seen quite a stretch from The Quiet Earth to, to Casey Ryback, but it's the, it's the same sense, I think, of, of the, the unflappable, the, the unassailable, um, the, 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 the self-reliant, Male, male figure. 
although that that kind of um, wanders into what might seem a very kind of cliched action cinema in the American films, it's there as a as a strong national characteristic in, in the New Zealand films, I think. Now, have you experienced many other uh, Kiwi films filmmakers? Oh yeah, I think you can you can you can make very strong links between where Murphy is in the, in the um, late seventies and somebody like Roger Donaldson. If you if you see Sleeping Dogs, for example, Sleeping Dogs is a, a film of a, a kind of a, a revolution, almost a sort of civil war within the context of of New Zealand, and that. That sits very, very strongly, I think, alongside something like Utu and, and the Quiet Earth again, the sense of the, the, the outsiders. And uh, there, there's a kind of a hint of that in in um, the Quiet Earth when they break into the, the, the military depot and they're, they're tooling up with all the things that they find there. Um, then I think you could also see that, I mean, that, that same sense of, of um, and Barry Keith Grant in, in the Kakabo series described Peter Jackson's films as, as a cultural assault. I think mean, there's the same thing there in, in very early Peter Jackson films. And then, if anything, I think um, the, the kind of um, uh, shock or, or impropriety or, or the edging to the boundaries of, of, of taste that you see in some of Murphy's films is obviously much more extreme in, in the early Jackson films. Although it's obviously simplistic and it's not necessarily particularly revealing to, to look at um, filmmakers and, and lump them together undifferentiatingly in, in that in that first decade or decade or two of, of New Zealand cinema, you can see Donaldson, Jackson, Murphy, uh, and people who work together as well. There's, there's a, a strong history of them working on each other's films, for example, as well in that in that period. I think you can see that they are of a piece in the way that they um, have a, a pride in being different, in being separate. When it comes to his American films, do you see, I know you've mentioned a, a lot of his kind of independence is, is flowing throughout those and um, seeing that kind of dotted line between The Quiet Earth and, and Under Siege 2. What are some of the other things that you saw him doing in his American works and uh, and kind of the, the themes that he was exploring through those? I don't know if there's a stronger thematic link. I mean, he, he becomes, in some ways, he becomes director for hire. Um, which you could see as a as a, as a kind of a um, a step down. In other ways, it's it's a you know, it's a commercial business, and the films he makes in in the states are um, as good as any really in, of, of that ilk. I think what you what you do see is one of the things that does carry over, which is one of the things that I think took me a, a while to to kind of appreciate. But in some ways, it's, it's one of the most important distinguishing things about about Murphy is the strongest parts in the in the New Zealand films are or some of the most uh, conspicuous parts are, are still uh, stunts, action sequences, strong, spectacular pieces, even within the context of quite small New Zealand budgets. And that's the thing, I think, which, which he carries over into the American films. And the thing that um, has distinguished him in some ways is, is, is him as a, um, a highly respected and very proficient um, second unit director. This is the person who does the action sequences really well. You look at Goodbye Porpoise, the stunts, the car stunts and so on are, are really strong. Um, and the same thing happens with the, the action sequences in, in, in his later films. And that's, that's his contribution to um, Jackson's Lord of the Rings, for example. He's a second unit director on that series of films. And it's obviously kind of below the, ra- below the radar of, of most viewers, but he's, you can see that um, that's his forte. That's the, that's the thing that he brings to uh, to the filmmaking of uh, 
America, but also to of some of his more um, better-known um, compatriots as well. Were you able to track down some of the uh, TV movies that he did while he was in the States? Oh, yeah. Um, have you seen Blindside? You know, I I remember the box cover, but I don't remember <laughs> the movie. It's a Rukihawa uh, movie. Um, and yeah, it's got an amazing cast. Yeah, and it's... Um, and I, I, you look at it and you think, okay, this is... Uh, I think I know where this is coming from. But even then, uh, even, even if you think it, I know exactly what I'm getting from the from the DVD cover. There's There are moments of panache. Uh, there are moments of, of, of kind of, um, of pushing the, the boundaries of, of, of taste, which seem to be very much recognizable within the context of the, the bad jokes and the violence of something like Utu. Even though they're a decade or more apart, you can see that they're, and even though they're across completely different filmmaking contexts, you can see the same, the same hands on them, I think. The one thing that I've always been very impressed with was just the quality, the caliber of actors that he has worked with over the years. I mean, even looking at something like The Last Outlaw, you know, to see that Eric Red is the writer and Mickey Rourke when he was in his prime, you know, being in the star, just amazing. Yep, and again, even something like Young Guns too. you know, you have William Peterson, you have Christian Slater, you have um, you know, strong cast of the, of the of the era. I, again, I think there's, there's something in the way that um, um, he worked on the... Um, later American uh, remake TV series of the Magnificent Seven, I think. Um, and you can see that there's something recognizable, perhaps, or something that's, that's distinguishable in there about the way that he was he's picked out as somebody as a, as a, a latter-day Western director from Young Guns and, uh, and from Utu. So I think, you know, there's, um, if you see Utu, it's, it's, it's like a, a, a latter-day American sort of revisionist western or like a, a spaghetti western it's it's taken lots of different strands from from a, um, a very august and long-running genre and applied them to a, a specific national context but um when he crosses over to america then he's, he's making perfectly proficient westerns in, in the, the real country if you like or the the, in the the home site of that of that genre I know you've written about, um, obviously, a New Zealand filmmaker, and then you would go on to uh, write about the films of Peter Weir. What did you see as far as the difference between the the Kiwi filmmaker and the Aussie filmmaker? Is there a very distinct difference? Because obviously, being an American, I think everybody's from, you know, just the other world, and I don't really pay attention. I think that the two... Com- comparable moments, I think, the, the revival in Australian film and, and the revival in New Zealand film, which takes place within a decade or so, or it's a decade and a half of the revival in in, in Australia. But although there, was, there are strong links between the, the two, and strong comparisons you can make between the, the two film industries and the way that they, they grow under um, uh, government sponsorship in a way, and you have a small card of remarkable directors that come out in the first decade or so that, that distinguish those film, those filmmaking cultures and also are, are recruited to America very quickly in, in both cases and you know, some of the most um, uh, outstanding and, and key filmmakers from both Australia and New Zealand end up pursuing longer careers in, in America. I think aside from all of those those similarities, it's, it's important to see them as, as distinctive as well. I mean, the, the, the budgets are probably smaller across the board in New Zealand. The, the total number of films coming out of New Zealand is, is, is smaller, and uh, in some ways the revival is, is, is more tenuous, it's more difficult to maintain. But then, equally, I think the, uh, one of the things that unites these two 
filmmaking cultures, although it's also uh, paradoxically something which is most distinguishing, dis- distinctive about them is the way that they use their, their landscapes. You know, um, Jackson has, has done the most extraordinary uh, thing with um, bringing New Zealand film uh, uh, landscapes to the rest of the world. But I think um, equally you have that sense in, in uh, Australian films that what's the unique selling point, if you like, what's the most important aspect to, to bring to um, their um, film audiences, and that's the national landscape as um, something that nobody else has. I know you're very interested in cinema and landscape, even having co-edited a, a volume called that with yeah. Graham Harper. Now, I read that you were working on a new volume of that, is that correct? Yes, we're working on the third one as well, yeah, uh, this year, um, which will be on um, suburbs. We're looking at uh, a collection of essays on the suburb on film, which will put together people from Australia and from um, Europe uh, and America as well. Uh, so it'll be a, a collection of around about 15 or so uh, essays, we hope. Is there an over-the-edge essay in there? No, I don't think there is. I mean, we've, we've had a we've had a um, a call for papers out just um, before Christmas and after Christmas, and we've got a, a range of things from. Um, obviously, Graham's been um, looking at uh, collecting people from the from stateside, and we've got some some people from the UK, um, some people looking at uh, British cinema as well as cinema in France, in France and Europe as well. So we've tried to keep it in the same kind of vein as the other collections to be very broad in the way that it. Um, um, represents different individual filmmakers and individual um, national film cultures as well. What else are you working on these days? We've got um, uh, another uh, collection of sort of landscape-orientated things, which comes out of a, a small conference we ran in Sheffield uh, about this time last year, which was um, it was called Mapping Cinematic Norths. We, we, I know Norths, a variety of Norths, both sort of conceptual and, and geographical Norths. So we had um, again a, a very eclectic mix of, of papers for that from uh, academics in in uh, the, the north of England, mostly. Some, some from Sheffield, some from um, Edinburgh and uh, Manchester and, and Leeds universities. Um, all the different incarnations of, of Northness, not just in the UK, but also in Scandinavia and uh, uh, the Canadian uh, uh, filmmaking and also in, in Northern Europe. And Northern, uh, I read a paper on uh, Northern Italy, for example. Um, so that was, a, again, it's a, a very curious mix of, of Ideas around the way in which the North uh, is incarnated as a as a concept, as a, as a place, as a set of values, in opposition to other senses, senses of place and value, um, and that's uh, that's another collection which we'll be editing. I'll be editing with a colleague at Sheffield over the next twelve months, all being well. So it's, it's keeping the cinema now getting going, but in, in in different, in slightly different tones, I suppose. Are you doing any uh, Northern Territory of Australia? Yes, I'll be doing something on that fairly inevitably. I'll be doing something on the Northern Territory. And um, going back to some of the um, ideas of the Gothic again, there's, there's a, a rash of films about uh, people being eaten by crocodiles, which is you know, the, obviously the only thing that happens in the Northern Territory. So, yeah, that's, that's what I'll be, I'll be doing my, my contribution on. First, your love for the trumpet or your love for film? Well, there's always 
Uh, I'm just a music nostalgist, I think, yeah. So how did you begin making movies? It was about the time in New Zealand when television was just starting. And a lot of uh, the people in the... We had a jazz club. A lot of the people there got jobs at the television. And so there's a great deal of discussion going on about the motion picture business and the moving image and all that sort of thing. And it was a very institutionalized um, approach to things that New Zealand television had. And we were always fairly scornful of their product. You know? <laughs> Couldn't figure why the stuff they were making wasn't very interesting. And that led me to actually have a go myself, really, over the, you know, pick up a bollocks and start shooting stuff, you know. When did you meet uh, Bruno Lawrence? Oh, I met him when, when I was about 13. Just to knock around as kids. How did you kind of come to be part of Blurta? He was a, a fantastic drummer. I don't know whether you knew that. He was a, a jazz drummer, really good, you know, world-class artist. There were three sisters. We we all married sisters. Bruno, um, I married Bruno's wife's sister. And John Charles, who was our pianist, who did the music for quite a and Uttum and all that, married the other, the third sister. We're all members of, of the jazz band. <laughs> so that's how that sort of cemented things, I suppose. And then he he did, at that time when Blurter came about, he did, he asked me to join it. He was also very intrigued by my experiments in filmmaking and wanted to incorporate them in the show somehow, you know. Yeah, what were those Blurter shows like? Fairly extraordinary. So completely chaotic, often. Sometimes that wasn't a good thing, but sometimes it was astonishingly brilliant, you know. That the accidents of chaos can be um, unattainable by any other method. Uh, it was basically it was a, a rock and roll group, really. And it was really a, a show band in another way. Like the musicians were fairly high caliber, so they could play all manner of styles. And there were actors travelling permanently with them, and filmmakers like myself. Helen Whitefoot, a few other people. So we had on tap a continuous supply of actors. We could shoot something. If we had an idea, we could just go out and shoot it with the people around us at the time. All the stuff we shot was mute, was silent, because we shot behind the band, you know. But it was a very good uh, learning process. I was curious, what was the New Zealand film industry like when you were uh, making these early films? Well, it was, wasn't really one. You know, it was, there was no financing, and uh, the people that did have, people like the television people, and there was a national film studio, you know, which did sort of government propaganda, I suppose, um, both had an extremely shut-door attitude. They wouldn't let anyone have any equipment or wouldn't hire anyone, you know. They were just incredibly negative about any nascent industry at all, for some reason, which we never figured. I guess I scared of us. So there was very little. It was a very amateur 
thing, but it was um, quite driven. You know, there was we were fortunate that a whole generation of people came came up together with the same idea. You know, to make films. And people like Roger Donaldson are still there in America making them. And so we set to it against all odds, you might say. And the other thing was that because all the outlets to our product were sort of closed to us, the only one left was the cinema. We had to target the cinema for our product because it was the only one left. But the cinema at that time, in the 1960s, was at its nadir. 1980s even was at its nadir. The television had almost killed it, you know. The attendance figures were plummeted, plummeted to the lowest in history. So when we opened those films, like Goodbye Port Pie and Quiet Earth and all that, we were opening to an extraordinarily depressed industry. And to everyone's amazement, people came in large numbers and watched them. You know, there are so many talented directors and actors and just such a, a, a wide range of people that are installations now in the the Hollywood industry or the, the film industry and that it was such a um, different scene just, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah. Well, nowadays, of course, it's dominated by um, Peter Jackson and uh, the Hobbits and things like that, you know huge American productions, and more money goes into those than everything else put together. So in some ways, if you ignore that, things haven't changed that much. How did you come to make The Quiet Earth? Um, it was offered me. A producer had picked it up as a book. The book was a fairly, fairly unsatisfactory, and uh, someone else was going to direct it. And they got cold feet at the last minute. And it was at the point, too, there was a, a type, after Port Pie, around about the time of Port Pie, the government, there, were, we, there was a, a form of financing was introduced, and the government allowed it, um, to do with tax shelter, you know, applying, applying uh, people with large tax liabilities could uh, apply it to film. But it was a pretty unsatisfactory system because it was it wasn't a fit a way of dodging your taxes. It wasn't you know because film you can apply tax shelter to all manner of industries that have got a fair chance of going into profit. You know, but New Zealand film did not have a fair chance of going into profit. We just don't have the population to support a film industry. You know, like Pork Pie was a huge success. I think, I think it grossed a million and a half. You know, that means the producers getting back about four hundred thousand, which was about what it cost. But it certainly wasn't a raging success from that point of view. That you know, an investor's not interested in just getting his money back; he wants to make a profit. You know, it was pretty, pretty tough going. I mean, it was extremely exciting because that. When it took a minute and a half in New Zealand, that was kind of the level that that films like Jaws and uh, Star Wars were operating at. You know, that was you can't expect to do much better than that. You know, and it was queues down the block and everything. You know, it was pretty exciting. You know, still 
the reality for a small industry like New Zealand is that we need government patronage of some sort, whether it's through tax shelter or something else, to um, survive. And at the time of quiet air, they'd announced the cancellation of tax shelter. It would no longer be, you know, people over-exploiting it, people getting greedy. So the government shut it down. And they allowed anything that had started was already underway to um, be completed. There was a September the 30th date, I can't remember what year, I think it was 86. So it had to be completed by, we had to have a screening, which was a double-head fine cut, to satisfy their rules. And they would allow the tax shelter, but that would be the end of it, you know. You know, when this guy who was going to make quite this saw that date approaching, you know, you could work out backwards when you had to start shooting to meet that date, you know. Mm. He panicked. He realized that there was no way he was going to get this thing together in time. And so he went to the producer and they threw it open and, and asked me if I would come in and produce and direct it for them. I agreed to with some trepidation because the, the script was in very poor shape. And then we, we four of us, which included Bruno, locked ourselves in a, in a room and and had a think tank on it for something like four weeks and hammered out a new script, page one, new script. Even then it wasn't that satisfactory. But we, it was good enough to send people out to find locations and things, you know. And because... There's only three people in it. Casting wasn't going to be a huge task, you know. So, so we um, were then able to go back and spend another two weeks working on the script before we had to start shooting. So we went into the shoot, not at all sure that, you know, I wasn't at all confident that we'd actually achieved our goal. But the whole, so the whole experience of Quietus, from my point of view, was one of struggle, constantly struggling to get the thing into shape, you know. And that struggle went right through the shoot. And, that's, you know, at the end of the shoot, I wasn't that convinced we'd done it, you know. And then into the editing and finally into the sound mixing, sound track laying and sound mixing, which was done in Australia. And at the end of it, we sat down and watched the picture. And to my astonishment... <laughs> It turned out extremely well. <laughs> it was almost like, because there was such a struggle, you could never lift your head far enough above the task to see what you were doing. So, you know, the other films were like that. I mean, films are always a bit of a struggle. Cinema, production for cinemas, is a pursuit of excellence. You can't accept anything less than that. So it's always going to be really difficult. What were some of the things that you didn't like about the script when it first came to you, and what were some of those changes that you made? When I first got the script, it started with the world as normal, fully populated. And it's quite early in it. The effect happens, you know, they, they set in motion this international thing that was going to cause some sort of rent in the space-time fabric or something. And everyone disappeared, and this guy wakes up, finds everyone's gone, and, and the film plays out similar to how it did, although his 
it was difficult, different because he, the first person he comes across in the original book is a bloke. It's the other man, you know. They don't come across a woman until right near the end. And I thought, well, that's not that's a very satisfactory shape for, for creating dramatic tension, I think, you know. So, so we swapped all that round. And then at the end, they went back and did the experiment backwards or something, and everyone came back. And it always struck me as being almost like a high school essay at that point, you know. And then I woke up and it was all a dream, sort of, you know. And I, I just thought, this is never going to fly. It just never will in this form. So when they asked me to do it, I said, well, I'll do it on a number of conditions. And they said, like, what? And I said, like, one is, there's never going to be more than three people in this picture. <laughs> you know? And they went, what? You can't do that, you know. It's important how you're going to pull it off. I said, and one person's going to have to hold it for the first half, you know. And they found that sort of really challenging. And I said, but the thing about this is that if you pull it off, you create something of some distinction. And even if you don't, it's an extremely brave try. <laughs> you know? And I wasn't interested in anything less, you know. So we proceeded along those lines. Had you worked with uh, Bill Bear or Sam Pillsbury before? Well, Bill Bear, Bear was and Pillsbury were the authors of the original script. Bill Bear had nothing to do with the rewrite, but Sam Pillsbury did. And Bruno Cannon, there was a lot of argument about the credits, and the credits, the writing credits, I don't think I'm even credited, and yet I know that I was responsible for well over half of the new script. It was to do with arguments with the producers about various things. It was all a bit silly. You know, 30 years later, seems like a waste of time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we know who wrote it, and I don't really care what's on the credits. Those opening credits are just gorgeous, that whole just having just the sunrise for yeah. the, the opening. Just so wonderful, and it just sets, sets such a mood for it. Yeah, it's interesting, because, you know, at the end of the shoot... We paid off the whole crew who had been, I must say, there'd been a fairly ratty sort of attitude amongst them while we were shooting it for some reason. That reason being historic, I think, something to do with tax shelter and all that. But um, we kept on a skeleton crew for about two weeks, and in that two weeks, we shot quite a significant part of the picture. I mean, we shot that opening shot, which is three minutes long. <laughs> That's a significant part of the picture. And we shot the ending shots, you know, the, the Saturn in the sky and all that stuff. But there's another three minutes there, I think, the end of the credits. But, you know, to get that opening shot, I mean, I think we travelled something like 40, or 40 miles every morning for eight days before we got that sunrise. You know, we'd go out every day and set up and wait for it and it wouldn't happen or <laughs> go back to town and shoot something else. It was, a, it was interesting. That the most interesting thing about Quietus was the challenge of trying to create all those sort of science fiction-type effects without any budget at all, you know. Like that, that stuff of them 
when the effect happens and there's an effect there like, like you're hurtling through space or something. And we were arguing about how to shoot that. And I'd say to the camera, well, why don't you put on a raincoat and we'll and lie down in the shower and we'll point the camera up with a underwater housing or something and light the water drops coming down. No, you didn't think that would work. Then you get, you know, trying to cope with the water would be a major. And then he said, but hang on. What if we got a beanbag, one of those beanbag furniture things, and cut it open and spilt the beanbags down from inside a black tent? So we did that. That's how we got that shot. And we ran ran the camera at different speeds to get the things. And then we we had an extractor fan in there, sucking it, sucking stuff up out of out of the top of the tent. And uh, so then we put smoke in it, we'd suck it up out the top. We'd play light into it amongst the smoke, which would do a marbling effect. And when that was sped up and printed in reverse, <laughs> you'd get the effect you wanted. So it was quite a, it was quite fun playing with all those things and just experimenting with the skeleton crew and getting all that stuff right. We used, we used to refer to it. For Star Wars for two shillings. <laughs> How did you get that final shot? How was that kind of composed? It was a match shot. That was a good old session match shot from the 1930s, 1920s even. I used to do those where you have a large black box painted black inside that the camera sits in and has a big sheet of glass over the front of it. And yet, um, you film one of those, in that case, the beach, but you block the sky out completely with black. In that case, we put black tape along the horizon and put black paper over the sky. So only this bottom part of the frame is being exposed. Then you'd rewind it. You'd put a mark at the beginning, a punch mark, and the thing. you'd rewind it in the dark and load the film again and uh, then you'd peel the tape off the, the glass and replace it with black the opposite to what was before so now only the sky is exposed and we had a large painting done of all those weird clouds and shit like that and we shot them and then we rewound that again and back to the beginning and we did a, a large cutout of Saturn which we lit and then very very slowly tilted down on it so it would rise in the picture um, and we had a hold back mat inside the mat box it was because it was so close the camera was slightly soft so you can see through the edges so that Saturn would appear to be behind the clouds such a nice effect and just such a striking image. Yeah, so old-fashioned. <laughs> yeah, just completely old-fashioned. I've read so many different interpretations of that ending. Do you care to share what yours is? Well, it was hard come by because <clears throat> when we first rewrote the script, we came back, and when we came back, which was um, the film finished earlier, like he goes off to blow up the thing, and in fact, he succeeds and kills himself, and we're left with the other two 
upon earth and they become the new Adam and Eve. That was the ending. But that all seemed a bit trite. <laughs> and so, and when, when someone came up with the idea that, but what if he, we all know the effect's going to happen again and they're trying to blow this thing up before it does. What if, what if he pushes a button at the exact moment the effect happens again? Then the whole front of the story tells us that if you die at the exact moment the effect happens, you get transported to some other reality. <laughs> so we went with that. So he's transported to some other reality. How was it working with uh, Bruno so much on that film? Because he, I mean, he's in almost every shot of the movie. Uh, well, I had the same difficulties because he's not a well-behaved person. Well, he wasn't. He's dead now. Because he'd, he'd go out at night. He'd, you know, you'd shoot half a scene and he would go off that night and disappear and no one would know where he was and he'd be whoring and bloody taking drugs and going off. <laughs> you know, we'd pick him up the next day and he'd look about 10 years older. <laughs> They'd throw him into makeup for several hours to try and get something that would match what they'd done the day before. <laughs> it was a bit of that went on, you know. What was it working with uh, Pete Smith? Well, Pete was a first-timer. He'd never acted before, but he was a very generous soul, you know. And like a very, he would say, "How about I try this?" You know, <laughs> like he, was, he was a bit like a puppy dog. He was quite good. I mean, he was great. I enjoyed working with him. You had a lot of experience working with non-actors on Utu, right? Yeah, yeah. Most of them, a lot of them were non-actors. Well, my whole thing right, right through when I traveled with the Rock and Roll Band, you know. We normally worked with non-actors. That was normal. You know? <laughs> um, and partly that was because the establishment used to work with actors, but the only actors available were repertory sort of actors. So they they had a sort of stage technique and they were very broad and, and not very convincing, not very natural. So we found non-actors, if you could persist and get through it, to be much more believable. Actually, so uh, uh, we went that way, you know. Part of the uh, thing about directing actors became you, you, at all costs, you've got to stop them acting. <laughs> and that gets you the most natural answer, you know. As an American, one of the things that I don't necessarily understand is some of the racial relationships that happen in New Zealand. Was it purposeful that the Pete Smith character was a native versus the Bruno Lawrence character? Yes. Well, partly too, it was because we felt very strongly that the films we were making, they were being made with tax money, New Zealand taxpayers' money, and that we had to reflect our own culture and the, and the pictures we were making. So a small change like that gave it a different New Zealand flavor. So we were keen to do that, you know, other than that, the, the relationship between the Maoris and, and the whites in New Zealand was not unlike the, the relationship in America with the Indians. You know, they'd fought wars and and lost, you know, and they'd been shit badly treated for many years. And now there was a lot of political movement to try and compensate them for that. Was that kind of the same reason why um, Alf Winters was Maori and Never Say Die? No, not really. That was just 
people looking amongst uh, you know all the people available, he seemed to be the best to do it. That's another one where it's like you know Tamara Morrison is everywhere now, yeah. so it's nice to go back and see one of his earlier roles. Yeah, I think it was about his first one, wasn't it? Was that his his first time out? Uh, he might have done a little bit of work before that. He's never done a feature, I don't think. Well, he's really good in it. I actually I like his performance a little bit better than uh, the lady that's in there from uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Oh yeah, yeah. She was a little bit bad. Yeah, she just sort of didn't get it, I, and it was hard to know what to do. <laughs> you get that though. Sometimes you get you know casting mistakes, and you and you're stuck with them. What was it like with you and John Charles and Bruno Lawrence all being brothers, brothers-in-laws <laughs> to one another? It was okay, except that, that our relationships were susceptible to, you know, like when I left my wife, I had to live in an atmosphere where their wives were all extraordinarily disapproving of me. <laughs> you know? oh. And that became, that caused a you know, definite downturn in their relationships. What was your working relationship with, uh, like with John Charles? Because the score for The Quiet Earth and Utu and others, it's so good. See, we were, I went to school with him too. When we were still at college, we were playing in bands. You know, he was a pianist. And so we went through many, many years of, of musical association. And I don't think anyone had ever asked him to do a, a score for a film when I approached him. The first one he did was Pork Pie. But I knew he'd done, he studied composition at university, you know. So he had classical training. He did a great job of it. So from that point on, I sort of stuck with him. But he just left and went to Australia. Even by the time we were doing Quiet Earth, he was in Australia. And that sort of made it harder, but we still managed to get it, get it done. Was The Quiet Earth, was that the last time that you and Bruno Lawrence worked together? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Was it just too stressful, that film? Because it sounds like kind of a trial by fire. Oh, well, then I, I started going... By then I'd left my wife, you see, and all that stuff was happening, and it was all... It wasn't my, It wasn't really my idea. He just sort of stopped contacting me. I think it was just too uncomfortable for him. And also, I started getting overseas offers and, you know, was spending a lot of time in Australia and the United States. Yeah, what was that transition like, going from making films in New Zealand to making them in the States? The difference is from the director's role is completely different. I don't know if it is these days, but it was then. Like we, in New Zealand, we had more of a French attitude towards directing. The French, you know, the director is the auteur. He does the casting and makes all those creative decisions, even down to the final cut. Whereas in the States, you're a hired hand, you work for a studio, and you do what you're told. <laughs> they, they'll cast the film. Um, in fact, if you're too, this happened to me a few times, if you're too uh, aggressive about who you want in it, they'll fire you know, and get someone who's more amenable. It's quite different. There's a lot more interference run on what you do. And it doesn't take much interference to completely upset you, you know, in terms of your understanding, your struggle to make a film. It's, it's, it's hard to explain. It's to do with, it's like trying to do a jigsaw where you only ever see one piece at a time. <laughs> the piece that you're creating for the next piece to go in it isn't 
not seen until it's fitted, sort of, you know, you can lose your way very easily. And that's why almost all directors, even your Ridley Scott's and that, we all make movies that aren't too good from time to time. But, you know, no matter how brilliant they are, everybody has a bad movie or two. Um, it's because it's just really, really difficult to to get your mind across such a broad thing. So if anything, if anyone in an executive position continually questions your, your judgments and that, you become, it's easy to become lost. Of course, if you're working for a studio and it's their film and that's what they want, you just accept being lost. You just say, oh, well, you know, that's what you want and that's what you're getting and... and uh, so a lot of my American stuff is, in my opinion, of lesser quality because of that, you know. Well, it's interesting that, like, probably, I think like, one of my best American films was that thing I did with Steven Seagal, surprisingly, you know. Oh, Under Siege 2? Yeah. And uh, have you seen that? Oh, yeah. So I actually saw it at the theater. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's quite a high-energy picture. but um, And that was interfered with continuously, you know, like appallingly. But somehow we managed to scrabble a picture out of it. How is he to work with? It seems like he comes across as difficult to me, but I don't know. I've never worked with the man. <laughs> yeah, he's a total monster. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's very, very difficult to direct a genius because they know everything already. It's kind of interesting to look at your body of work and see that when you came to America, you kind of had to pick up where other people had left off, doing Young Guns 2 and Under Siege 2 and Fortress 2. What was that experience like? It was okay, because each one of those things was treated like a new picture in a a way. You didn't feel any obligation towards anything that had gone before. Except, you know, like with Steven Seagal, you're doing a Steven Seagal picture. Well, I mean, there's a really ironic thing that happened there because they offered me this picture of Steven Seagal. I agreed to do it. And then about six months later, we signed a deal and everything. Steven Seagal decided that he didn't want to do that script. Well, the script was rubbish. Threw it out. Wanted another one. <laughs> you know. And so this created a bit of a problem for the for my agent. He said, well, you're no longer bound by that contract. I said, you, you signed up to do this other picture. You know, do you agree to fold your contract over onto the new one? And I said, so you're asking me to commit to a picture that I don't know, don't know what it's going to be? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I suppose I do know what it's going to be. It's going to be a Steven Seagal film. They're all pretty much the same, you know. <laughs> I guess I can do that. <laughs> Can you tell me, what was it like making Free Jack? I'm actually a very big fan of that film. Uh, yeah. Well, that was probably the most interfered with film I ever made in my entire career. I mean, we were three weeks into shooting, just over three weeks in, when they flew into Atlanta and fired my leading lady, who was Linda Florentino, and they hired Rene Rousseau, who's a lovely person and everything, but... I found she had real problems in spanning the age difference, you know. Like, she was all right as an older Renee, but trying to play that sort of, 
young, almost teenager against Emilio. <laughs> that was always a bit of a stretch, you know. Whereas Linda managed to do that. And I remember when I asked them why they were firing her, the head of the company said, well, she doesn't give me a hard-on. <laughs> oh, I said, well, geez, your next hard-on's going to cost you some millions of dollars. <laughs> that, I mean, I enjoyed working with Nick. I loved working with him. On hindsight, looking at him, I was nowhere near as firm with him as I should have been. I, you know, I did him act far too much. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I should have just let make him play a dead band to do a Clint Eastwood on it all, you know, and he would have been a lot better, you know. Well, he does have some of the best lines in the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He does, and he, he's good, he's great. I like the little part of that course, the accent thing, you know. When, when I'd get up there and talk to him, if I was giving him instructions, for, you know, before a shot or something, he'd say, I don't want any more instructions. And I'd say, why not? And he'd say, because your accent, your accent's confusing me. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> he would do hours with a voice coach to try and sound, not sound English, you know. And then he'd get on set and I'd start raving at him in my Kiwi accent. And <laughs> Did you eventually uh, go back to New Zealand and, and keep making films there? Yeah, I came back and made, made a couple of small things, but not so much. I'd had enough of it, really. Can you tell me about the uh, Utu revised, revisited? Oh, well, basically, that was, see, that was a case of, of uh, interference. You know, the producers took the original Utu over and recut it for foreign marketing. They chopped it up completely, really in a big way and they um, cut the original negative and not a dupe or anything so when they asked when they got round they, they wanted to preserve it to, you know they wanted to re-scan it and do all that modern stuff with it to try and get it back you know because it was starting to deteriorate I said well I'm not I'm just recovering that bastardized version <laughs> So I said, oh, we'll put it back together how it was, if you like. And I said, oh, okay. Because even, you know, with missing frames they can create now, with digital sort of magic. So we went in and we spent weeks putting it back together, sort of how it was. Once we got it back how it was, we looked at it and said, well, Frank, we can do better than that. So we gave it a bit of a recut. <laughs> so it got a lot smarter. So the Utu Redux really is. It's 100% on any other version of it. It's very, the, the job that it's Jackson's people, you know, all those County Award people that did King Kong and, and Weta, you know, those people, they, they did the picture work. The picture work's fantastic and the sound work is even better because um, they got that John Hopkins who'd um, had several Academy Awards and he was since it's been drowned. But, um, yeah, he did a fantastic job, so, so it's pretty good. As a Kiwi, does it piss you off when people call you Australian? Well, you come to, yeah, it used to, you know, when I was in the States, people often used to think I was South African for some reason. But, uh, yeah, no, you get used to it. I mean, you, you know New Zealand's a small place, and, and you, we know that Americans are extremely ignorant. <laughs> 
I will not argue with that. <laughs> it is a fact that Americans tend not to be particularly interested in anything. Well, it's actually, it's changing. Anything that happens outside America doesn't exist, you know. <laughs> but I think it's changing these days. So you said that you're retired. What are you doing these days? Uh, well, at the moment, I'm writing my memoirs. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> yeah, but it's hard work. But I've got a publisher interested, so that's good. And the publisher's Harper Collins. That's quite a big, strong firm. So, so that's what I've been doing lately. And in fact, on Friday, I have to go to, to the laboratory to check a, a print of um, The Quiet Earth, which they've been scanning and refurbishing and splashing up. But they don't need to do any other changes. You know, there wasn't, there wasn't that much interference in The Quiet Earth. That's one I regret that I never got to see on the big screen. I would have loved to have seen that in a theater. Yeah, you got to see it on the big screen. The thing about the quiet is, I don't know, I was, I was really, because I was, I guess it's because I was so anxious, I put a lot of work into it. So all that opening stuff, you know, the, the sunrise, and the, you watch that for three minutes, and then you, then it got to a shot of a guy lying in bed, stark naked, you know. <laughs> Uh, shot from the roof, you know, and then it touched a big close out of his eyes or something. And it's almost Kubrickian, that opening. I'm very proud of that, the opening quarter of an hour of it, anyway, you know. Yeah, well, it was great, too, because we could play that game with the audience as he tries to find out whether he's alone in the world or not. And, <laughs> you know, all that stuff like following the white line down the middle of the road and then the white line goes off the road and into the paddock and, you know, and he sees the machine that's painting it over there. But, you know, yeah, we did have a lot of fun with it. up in the U.S., right? You know, I was born in Connecticut. I lived in the East Coast, mostly outside of Boston until I was 13. And then my parents immigrated to New Zealand. I went to high school and college and, you know, started and ran my film company for 20 years and then came back to Los Angeles to do movies. So about a 50-50 now, really. How did you decide to get into the movie business over there? Right from the time I was in high school with a teacher who loves movies, food, and wine, who kind of probably influenced me more profoundly than than I would have ever thought at the time, um, and got involved looking at movies and film society. And when I went to college, I started writing film reviews for the Auckland University newspaper. And um, I wrote about four reviews, and I remember looking back over them, and they all had to do with how the director use his technique to advance the narrative. And I thought to myself, well, it's kind of cowardly writing about other people making movies. Why don't I just do them myself? So I just sort of figured it out. It was be writing in the night in the sixties, there was no film industry in New Zealand. So when I finished college it was a tough call, but I got a job with a government documentary unit in, in Wellington, the capital city, and learned my class there. And then I sat out on my own and started a film company and Actually, I was pretty lucky. The first independent doco I made was a huge hit and won all the, you know, won the Academy Award equivalent in New Zealand, Australia, and England, and actually changed the world a little bit. And then I made, I wrote and directed the first New Zealand feature film to get into Cannes. So I got off at a good start. 
What was that early documentary like that got so much praise? I made a lot, but the, the particular one, the first, the first indie one that I made was, um, it was about childbirth, and I did it with a British psychotherapist called R.D. Lang, who was kind of a culture, counterculture hero. He wrote a book of poetry called Knots, and a, he wrote he wrote about schizophrenia quite a lot. He wrote a, quite a famous book on schizophrenia called The Divided Self. And um, this friend of the Beatles, and he, and he was he died playing tennis about. 15 or 20 years ago, but he was he was passing through New Zealand on a lecture circuit, and I shot a brief interview with him and crafted this whole movie around his point of view, which was about fashioning, wasn't about home birth, but it was about hospitals putting as their primary function the welfare of the woman and the child rather than um, the welfare of the doctor, you know, which is what, um, unfortunately, most American hospitals still don't, don't know, and um, how the technology should come second, not first, and should support the patient rather than intimidate them. And it was pretty pretty cool. We we changed the way they do it for babies in New Zealand and Australia and England. And I don't think I've ever made a movie since then that had that actual kind of practical impact. It was kind of a neat thing. How did you manage to get John Carradine in The Scarecrow? After his agent. <laughs> it's funny. He, he was on the, he was like doing a lot of bad, you know, really bad horror movie shit and everything. And he was really old. He wasn't that hard to get. And he was a totally pleasant human being. Had a lot of funny stories. Producers quite often do that. Um, we managed to not do that on, on The Quiet Earth because I owned the movie and I'd raised, I'd raised all the finance for it and we did whatever we wanted. But that was one of those little things where the, where the producers were trying to get a, a market by having a name in it. And he wasn't really a name anymore in that way. In fact, the funny thing is when he died, he had, he had a full-page album in the LA Times and it was quite interesting. I was reading and the thing I went on about his, you know, his his early days and the wonderful movies that he did. And uh, in, his, in his later years, John Carradine was mostly seen in pretty schlocky horror movies. There was one exception where that thing was really terrific. It was a new movie called The Scarecrow. This was in the LA, LA Times. That was kind of nice to read. <laughs> I made that made that movie for like three hundred and fifty six thousand dollars, I think. The Quiet Earth kind of starts with you. You were the one who read the book, and it kind of took you. Completely. I bought this book on a Friday. My production offices were in downtown Auckland, and there was a, a bookstore just about a block where I walked down there and saw it. I was, you know, I'm very interested in New Zealand literature, of course, and especially as, yeah, as a filmmaker. And also, I'm an English, I'm an English master's degree graduate. I, I taught Shakespeare at Victoria University. Saw this book, so I knew who the writer was because he'd. He'd actually done some um, stuff about um, interracial things in New Zealand and plays, and, and I knew about him. He's an Englishman, he's a Yorkshireman. I bought the book and read it on the weekend and purchased the rights on the Monday morning. It was quite a long and torturous journey, and in some ways it was, a, it was uh, quite profoundly upsetting for me because I worked on it. I worked on it, and I traveled to England and the U.S. to try to get financing and looking at casting and trying to find a way to pull it off. And funnily enough... I got it totally financed by um, Barclays Bank on a kind of a tax deal, which was subsequently disallowed by the by the New Zealand government. And I got into this situation where I didn't think the script was good enough, and I didn't know what to do with it, and I really should have just put it down for 12 months or six months and come back to it. But the letter I had from the tax department stipulated that I couldn't use the tax break past um, a date about nine months in the future. It was August 31st, as I recall, and um, there was, I just felt there was no way that I could, I could bring it up to the standard that I wanted to 
in that time. So I had to face the dilemma of either trashing it or try to find an escape route. And I had been um, the first movie I ever worked on a little a little bit. This was a scarecrow. It was called um, Goodbye Pork Pie. It was I was the first AP, and Jeff Murphy was the director, and it was everybody's first movie. It was a huge hit, and I loved working with Jeff. I thought it was actually brilliant. And I I asked him over, and I had him look at the script, and I said, "Tim, I, I I'm stuck here. What, what what you know? Can you help me? Is there any? Have you got any ideas?" And he went away. He came back a few days later, and he had this he had this huge list of ideas. It was that was so profound and so complex that I felt that in, in all honesty, I couldn't make a movie using his ideas. Like that. I said, look, why did, I got an idea. Why don't I produce the movie and you direct it? And he went away and thought about it for a couple of days and came back and said, yeah, so that's what we did. And I was just, I'm probably the only, the only guy who ever fired himself as a director because, because I was, I owned the movie, Lock, Stock and Barrel. There was no question. I had to, the money was in the bank. And, um, but you know, it, it, I tell you what, it made the difference. It gave it another another step up, and it made it um, more original and more interesting. Just an absolute genius. And you know, the other funny thing about the Quiet Earth was when we finished it, we all thought it was a dog. We really did, and to the point where some people took their names off the screenplay. Jeff took his name off as screenwriter. His girlfriend took her name off. I won and got the equivalent of the New Zealand Academy Award for the screenplay, and I, you know, I couldn't share it with Jeff because he kicked his name off the movie. And we thought it, we thought it was a dog, and it, it didn't sell, and it didn't sell, and it didn't sell. And then, then one day we got we got a distributor, and it went out. And the next thing you know, it was reading reviews like the hands down the best science fiction film of the '80s. And someone just sent me something on Facebook the other day, uh, something like nine science fiction movies that you probably didn't see, you know, and it was the first one. And uh, we still sell it. I mean, it's it's a, it's a real phenomenon. It's a real, it's a really interesting lesson, and a whole lot of things like um, the Scarecrow and the Quiet Earth are two movies that you you couldn't make in America unless you were your father had a whole lot of money. And the only reason we could make them was we had the money from tax deals and from the New Zealand Film Commission, and we didn't have to make ridiculous, stupid changes to pander to some distributor's idea of what makes a movie marketable, because what makes a movie marketable is its integrity and its originality and that it has something to say. And uh, nobody told us how to make either of those two movies, you know? How did the project change when Jeff came aboard? What did he bring to the table that was so different than where you were going with it? Well, it, it wasn't different. It just added another layer. The, 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 it was the same story about the same characters and the same kind of situation, but, but the... the um, I think that the, the, it's. I, I don't know if this is a hindsight, but Jeff was brought up a Roman Catholic, and when I look at the movie now, I think to myself that it's kind of a metaphor for um, purgatory. And um, if you look at it like that, there's that character, somebody who who feels he has sinned or might have sinned, and he goes to make amends and and doesn't doesn't quite. I mean, all that challenge, all the challenging interpretations of the ending, doesn't quite pull it off. So he kind of winds back where he started again. <laughs> so it's kind of a, a dark irony to it. But no, he just, you know, that that scene, for example, that everybody loves, where he's outside in his garden with the blown-up photographs of, um, you know, Hitler and Charlie Chaplin. So like that, that was totally just idea. And I really, I couldn't have pulled that off because it wasn't my idea. You know, it's a funny thing when you're making a movie, you have to know from your bones how to make something work before you you go out and do it because you're creating something out of nothing and you can't fake it. 
And I've been in a couple of situations where I, I tried to pull something off that, that I didn't really understand. And you know, it just doesn't work. And, and it's not an accident. Well, a good movie is, is not an accident. It's a miracle. <laughs> Jeff, to me and up to a lot of people, turned into a slightly different person after a while. And I'm not quite sure why that is. And I'm sorry that, that we weren't um, friends in the end. But I think we, had, we still had a lot of respect for each other. I fought to make that movie better every second that I could. And every penny that we raised went into that movie. And um, I'm really glad that for all the blood, sweat, and tears that it turned out to be worth it. It's interesting, you know, you having your beginnings in the States and then going over to New Zealand, it probably gives you a different aspect of looking at the racial relationships that uh, uh, happen in New Zealand. Yeah. And it's such a central part of the movie with, with the Appy character and the yeah. Zach character. Yeah. When you went over to New Zealand, how did you? How were you kind of struck by the way that um, they have the, the, the racial relationships well, in New Zealand? That's a really good question. Um, uh, to backtrack a little bit, when I was about six years old, we moved and lived in St. Croix in, in, uh, in the Virgin Islands. And I was. I have a school classroom picture of me. I was the only white kid in a class of sixty children. So I had this rare experience of being a being a white person, but being a, a minority. And it was an interesting situation to be looking at the situation that a lot of African Americans find themselves in in the U.S. on the other side. And then, uh, when I, so I was always been fascinated by um, racial relations and interracial relations, and when I started out making documentaries in New Zealand, when I was working for the National Film Union, I made a bunch of documentaries about um, about um, urban Maori and rural Maori, and I had a lot of very strong feelings about that and what it meant and what to do about it, and that was another reason I was attracted to the film. It was pretty comfortable territory for me, and then subsequently in 2000, I made a movie in New Zealand called Crooked Earth, which has no relationship to the Quiet Earth, except it's completely about a Maori land revolution. And I was one of the only people on white people on that set too, by the way. <laughs> and now I'm, you know, of course I'm kind of a Kiwi living in America, although I'm really an American. But um, being an outsider is something that I'm pretty familiar with. That situation has, has always fascinated me. I mean, if anyone was an outsider, it would have been Zach Hobson, you know. This was Pete Smith's first film role, correct? Yes, it sure was. <laughs> we we were we were um, interviewing a bunch of we were auditioning a bunch of street kids because there was no friggin' Maori acting school in New Zealand in nineteen eighty five or whenever it was. And I remember seeing this kid walk in and he sat in a corner, kind of glowering at us. And he was watching us audition these other kids, and and he's a super smart guy. And I could see he was watching what they were doing, you know. And then he came over and he just. He did this great performance. I mean, one of the things about, you know, there's a, there's a I, I've shot a lot of movies with African-American actors in the U.S. too, and, and obviously the, 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 the high-town strike rate in African-Americans is about 10 to 1 compared to, to, to white Anglo-Saxon and Protestants. And Maori is the same, and it's probably got something to do with, um, possibly has something to do with coming from a pre-literate culture and needing to do a lot of your communication on... on um, as performance. And a lot of Maori social interaction is public performance, literally acting stuff out in front of a large crowd, um, specifically in New Zealand on the Marae, where you, um, if, a, if one tribe's coming to visit another tribe's home place, they do it on this area called the Marae, which is a sort of open field in front of a, what, what they call a meeting house. 
and every character who's going to speak for their tribe has to stand up and do a big performance, you know. So it's a it's a very performance oriented culture. And uh you get a quite a high percentage of them being actually really good at at singing and at acting. Um I don't know if that's the reason, but it seems to me to make sense. Anyway, Pete was question who said to him, Oh, have you uh, ever seen a New Zealand film? And he said, Oh, well yeah. I was running away from the cops once and I hid in this movie theater and Goodbye Poor Pie was crying. <laughs> that was, <laughs> um, it was pretty funny. And I'm, I, I'm still friends with Pete, you know? I mean, he, I run into him every once in a while and, and he's, he's really, he's, he's a really cool guy, a cool dude. He's made his living as an actor ever since and I think pretty much. Tell you something else too. I did something on that movie where all the heads of the department and Jeff and all of the lead actors get a percentage of the income from that movie, and every year they get a check with, the, with that same percentage of the income from the movie to this day. You had mentioned um, Jeff having to take his name off the film and, and um, his girlfriend as well. There is one writer on here, Bill Baer. I was curious who that is and what, what his role was. Bill Baer was an American guy who was living in New Zealand who was who was a writer and, a, and he was trying to make his living as a screenwriter. And he and I did several of the first drafts, uh, several first drafts of the movie, got got the financing and the approval from the New Zealand Film Commission on the basis of those screenplays. And then I went to Jeff to do some more work on the script. And as a lot of New Zealand writers used to be and may well still be, they, the screenwriters have tended to regard their work rather like a novelist and you know can't be touched. And he was offended and just didn't want to work on it anymore. And I always try to tell writers, look, this this script is always going to be your script. Nobody's going to touch it, but I don't want to make that movie, you know? And I can't make a movie of a script that I don't think it works, whether it works or not. If I don't think it works, it's not going to work. So, But his widow still gets a check from the from the movie as well. <laughs> he died. He died. Bruno died. I think most of the rest of us are still alive. Did you um, interact much with Craig Harrison? Um, a little bit. I, I've always stayed friends with him, and we and we did interact. Um, he didn't. He. I did not want him to be involved in the creative side of making the movie because I wanted to just take it to a different place. And he was okay with that. And we've never had any problem. And he gets a check every time there's an income as well. You know. And and yeah, he lives on a beach. He lives on a beach in New Zealand, not a hell of a far away from where my beach house is in New Zealand. And, and sometimes we see each other and walk along the beach, and he's, he's a little bit like Prufrock. He's he's a funny English don who wears black trousers, and we walk up the beach, and he has the legs of his tr- trousers rolled like Prufrock did. I think it was kind of kind of funny, you know, like the English on a beach, and not like New Zealanders on a beach. I can tell you that. One of the things that you brought up in the audio commentary for the film, and I was just hoping you could kind of expand on it a little bit, is the whole idea of the end of the film when he's kind of looking, uh, speaking of being on a beach, but kind of looking up at the world. I mean, coming from America, it's such a different concept. It, 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 it's, it's, it's very strange, and especially when you, know, when you grew up in, in, partly in the U.S., living on a beach in the Caribbean or on the, near the beach in Cape Cod and and then it's subsequently curious enough on the beach and on the you know on the Pacific coast, when you look out at the sea, you're looking out at the rest of the world from what's kind of the center of the world. I'm probably you know generalizing, but that's kind of my emotion was my emotional experience. And going to New Zealand when you stood on a beach and looked out, you were looking out at where the rest of the world was from somewhere that was unimaginably far away. You know, um, New Zealanders 
so often when they get into their late teens and early 20s, do what they call OE, overseas experience, and they just can't wait to get away and to go and see America and Europe and find out what the rest of the world is like. And what's, of course, so terrific about that is they all come home. And because of that, in the last couple of decades, New Zealand restaurants now are some of the best food in the world, what used to be the worst, because they brought back the best of the cultures that they've seen. And it was interesting for me, too, spending half of my life in New Zealand and then coming back to the States and and seeing the way the different cultures work and seeing the, you know, I mean, the worst thing in my, one of the worst things in my opinion about the U.S. is the insanity of the gun culture. And, um, but also just other things, it's, I have so many friends who are kind of people that I know, people that buy my wine, that are in, that, that, that some of them I'm in business with who regard government intervention, intervention as some kind of sin that causes people to be fat and lazy and stupid and not do anything. And it, it just always, it's hilarious for me to send them back um, right up about New Zealand from you know the Wall Street Journal. It's the the second best country in the world to do business in. That's for the magazine, and in any other um, by any almost any other criteria, things like um, the one, two, three, four, or fifth best country in the world to live in by a whole lot of different criteria from different sources. There's this whole idea that the government's your enemy, and in New Zealand. You know, it doesn't. It, it didn't have a recession. It has. It has no national debt. I, I mean, it goes on and on, and it's not perfect. And it needs a kick in the ass in a whole lot of ways. But, but um, it was interesting to, to to work and live in a country which had a much more gentle view of welfare and education and healthcare and housing and and, and equality of income and equality of sexes than this country actually does that we live in now. And uh, so I'm regarded as a rape communist radical by some of my colleagues. <laughs> well, I'm curious, how did the, the government play into or not play into kind of the film industry? I mean, you were right there on the, the kind of bleeding edge, you know, sending, you know, one of the first films to Cannes and all this. So was there much help from the New Zealand, New Zealand government? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you could look at a whole range of things like the New Zealand wine industry, the New Zealand Kiwi food industry, the New Zealand film industry, um, hugely supported by government grants and and stim- stimulus packages to do things. And i got to tell you, you know, Lord of the Rings wouldn't happen if they hadn't changed the tax laws in New Zealand. I mean, it's it's um, just, again, just folly, you know, this this crap about government doing things up. I was trying to tell, I actually wrote a letter to a friend of mine this morning um, who's a libertarian, and said, you've got to get over this bad government because there's good government and bad government, you know? Use the good government and change the bad government. It's okay. It's okay if somebody pay your hospital bills when the car runs you over, you know? And it doesn't damage the culture. That's the myth. There's no evidence for this. It's a, it's a cop, cop brother's myth, and it's just not true, that taking care of people makes them fat and lazy. Quite the contrary. All the research that Harvard and Yale have done on this issue points to the exact opposite. In countries where people have are secure in their jobs, have good housing and good education, they, they're more creative, they're less violent, they're less mentally ill, they're more productive, and they're happier. And uh, it's another lesson that we don't really know here. Sometimes when I write, you know, write, when I challenge somebody on Facebook, I get this thing, why don't you go back where you came from? I love saying, that's, uh, sure, that's halfway between Walden Pond and the Concord Bridge. How did you get into the uh, the wine business? So, you know, the same way I got into movies. I love movies, and I just, just at one point I decided I think I want to make them, and I figured it out. And then I've always loved wine, and I started in New Zealand and bought some land on Waiheke Island, which turned out to be one of the best places in the country to grow wine grapes. And 
couldn't do that because I was too busy in LA. And then I found I found this miraculous valley in southeastern Arizona was probably the best place in America and maybe even the world to grow wine grapes. I bought all this land for pennies because it was in the middle of nowhere. And uh, we won so many awards. And, and, you know, I look back on it, it's really funny because I've only done it because I love it, but it turned out to be very successful. And um, all of a sudden I realized one day I did exactly the same thing I did with movies. I started out in Arizona making wine when there was no wine industry, no wine business and no wine market. And I planted vines and bingo, you know, we're rocking. Now there's a hundred bonded wineries in the state. Um, where I planted my first vineyard, there's now 500 acres of vines around me. Go on and figure out how to do what you want, you know? And, and I think that's, and Ian too, that's the most important thing. Don't don't get a job because you want to make money. Figure out how to make enough money to live doing what you want. It's almost the exact opposite of doing the same thing. I'm having so much fun, I can't tell you. I'm having a ball. Thanks to Sam Pillsbury and also Professor Rayner and Mr. Murphy for taking the time to talk to us. You can hear more with Professor Rayner on our Manhunter episode, and you can hear us talk about Mr. Murphy's other film that we've done so far and we referenced earlier, Free Jack, on that episode, both of which are available over at our website, projection-booth.com, or in the archives on iTunes. So, gents, we're talking about The Quiet Earth, and Mike, because uh, you actually are able to read, and, you know, I'm the world's slowest reader, did you get a chance to uh, check out the book, and what do we see are the differences between uh, the book and the film? I did get a chance to read the book, and I have to say, I think I was saying this a little bit earlier, that this episode really kind of came together despite some uh, heavy odds, one of which was getting Mr. Murphy to agree to talk to us. The other one was me finding this book. I had been looking for The Quiet Earth by Craig Harrison for years and years. Like I think since 2005 is when I put it on my A-Books watch list. And it would come up every once in a while, and it would be... Two hundred dollars. Ching. Four hundred dollars. Ching. Two thousand dollars. But a ping. For a copy of a paperback book, and I, and I thought maybe it was one of those like weird Amazon things where you know like the computer kind of one ups itself, and and you know you have a four thousand dollar copy of Fifty Shades of Grey or something. But this was actual because the book was so rare; it was going for these crazy prices, and then all of a sudden, maybe a year ago i started getting notices popping up saying quiet earth fifteen dollars quiet earth nine dollars and you know i jumped all over that shit (laughs) so i'm like oh my god i've got this cheap copy of a really rare book only to find out that it finally been reprinted so it is out there now available for folks to read for way less than two hundred dollars four thousand dollars whatever prices you can go out and pick it up i think 1595 is the 
cover price or something. I the <laughs> the way it finally happened, I jumped on it so quickly. I ended up buying an import from Australia, so I think the post just killed me. But it was way less than what I had been seeing. Great, great book. It of course is similar but different. Uh, we have a, the internal monologue of this is John Hobson now rather than Zach as our main character. And he tells us a little bit more about the project that he's been working on. And he's a lot more of a unreliable narrator, which I find to be very interesting. Fairly unreliable because there are times where he's hearing noises and we're not sure if he's hearing it or if the noises are there. There's one part where he's driving down a road and sees this kind of weird creature in the middle of the road. And we're not sure if this is what's left on Earth other than John Hobson or if this is, again, a figment of his imagination. Or is it kind of the demons of the past kind of catching up with him? And as we go through the book, kind of like what we do with the movie, we get more of a revelation of what has happened in his past. There's this whole thing about him having an autistic son and having a wife that couldn't handle that, and she divorced him. And so there's really a lot more backstory. It's interesting. He meets Oppie. And he meets Oppie first. Oppie's the only other person that he interacts with before they meet the woman. But when it comes to meeting the woman, it's a woman on the road that they hit with a car. And she is really messed up and dies almost immediately. So we don't get that love triangle. That's not there at all. And what we get instead is this real kind of tension between Oppie and John, as far as, is John crazy? Is Oppie maybe crazy? And he finds these photographs. John finds these photographs of Oppie's where it's him with all these uh, Viet Cong. Oppie had been in, in the Vietnam War and all these mutilated bodies. So he's thinking, okay, Oppie's a psychopath. And they end up having like a little war and all this kind of stuff. So there's a lot of echoes of the book in the movie, but it's different in the right way. And they stand individually as really nice works of art and they complement each other, but you can have one without the other. So I would have been fine not reading The Quiet Earth, but you know me, I was way too curious and I had to read the book. Now, is the book also a product of New Zealand? Uh, it is product of a British writer who moved to New Zealand, and he lives there today, is even out on the beaches, apparently. Because that was the thing I was wondering, is this film, and I know that some of the early Peter Jackson stuff was funded by the government and you know taxpayer money in order to have film industry there, and I was wondering if it was because it was a New Zealand-related book that therefore they were able to get the money to make this adaptation and make the film. I think at this point, anything being made in New Zealand was going to be funded by the government. And there was, you know, that's even why Peter Jackson's stuff had government money. It was kind of like as supportive, if not more supportive than the government of Canada giving David Cronenberg money. Yeah, back in the day, not anymore. <laughs> no. Yeah. No. There was this little rush of films. I mean, in the early 80s was kind of. And it was sort of pre-Peter Jackson in terms of people being aware of Peter Jackson. I mean, because there was this, there was Smash Palace, there was U2, there was – and there's a whole bunch of these really interesting films that kind of got world attention. And New Zealand really hadn't been on the map before then, but but I, as, at least if I'm remembering correctly. But there was – I remember that, that there seemed to be 
a lot of these sort of art house interesting movies that, that got a lot of critical and, 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 and press attention here in the States right around that same time. Yeah, it's interesting that Donaldson, who directed Smash Palace, Roger Donaldson, had kind of a similar trajectory as Jeff Murphy as far as starting off in New Zealand then moving to the U.S. and doing some projects there. I'm not sure who did it better, but it's interesting that both of these guys kind of got poached by the U.S. And um, it, it, of course, last week as I'm preparing for the episode, they're playing Young Guns 2 on TV, and I was just like, oh, hey, it's another Jeff Murphy film. I'll make you famous. Donaldson, he had his highs, he had his lows. You know, he uh, did White Sands, which I really, really like. I'd love to do an episode on White Sands one of these days. Um, at the same time, he did Cadillac Man, which I'm not a big fan of. But it, it uh, it's kind of neat to see how both of these filmmakers worked in their native New Zealand and then came over to the States and just what diverse films these guys made and then i guess you know you could kind of throw jackson into the mix as far as what he was doing pre heavenly creatures and then kind of post and you know like was the frighteners kind of his introduction to america and how successful was that or not and i know that one was one where it got cut to shit by the studio but then apparently the director's cut of that is uh, a lot better of a film and i think it's only about four hours longer when it comes to the director's <laughs> version. So so is that sort of the case, and, and maybe Keith, you know better than I, that sort of New Zealand was doing these small little independent films? Because, I mean, I think that Americans might be, at, at least in the mainstream consciousness, a little more knowledgeable about what's going on next door in Australia because they were making all these action films and stuff that seemed to get attention here. Well, yeah, I think New Zealand by nature, because they had probably less resources and less money and le- they, everything that I remember coming out of New Zealand tended to be much more intimate than that. I mean, Quiet Earth was about as epic as I remember any of the films being before, you know, Peter Jackson sort of took off and came back there with, with much more backing. But living in New York and and being part of like the, 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 the loving film scene in New York and all that, those films got as much attention as the Australian films. They just were a little bit more art house than mainstream in terms of their, their tone and their, their effect. I mean, you, you know, you had things like Mad Max that were much more sort of audience. For, oh, they were still artfully made, beautifully made films. I mean, but they were a little bit more cars and stunts and you know, whereas, whereas Quiet Earth, Smash Palace, Utu, One for Warriors, you know, all those, they, they tend to focus more on individual behavior than on, than on effects, even if they used effects. But but really, I don't remember that there being a lot of conscious differentiation between them in terms of people being excited about them. And and the U.S. certainly poached directors from every, as we do from everywhere. And anybody who shows talent, you know, we immediately scoop them up and and then often give them mediocre material and go, okay, well, you created this wonderful thing. Here's a not very good script. Try to make this into magic, uh, which seems to be your strange American habit with directors. Hey, John Woo, come on over. Let's get Broken Arrow. <laughs> I was just going to say that, yeah. Don't give us any of those slow-mo doves and shootouts in the church. Here, just do this, yeah. Yeah, right. and, then, and then everybody's like, well, why isn't this as good as your other stuff? It's a very strange piece of, uh, piece of ever-ongoing psychology in terms of the, the Hollywood studio system. 
So, of course, with Quiet Earth, we have a lot of comparisons to other end-of-the-world films. I mean, Rob, you've mentioned the um, the Romero flicks. I think I called out Night of the Comet a little bit earlier. You know, it, I've seen comparisons between this film and I Am Legend or Last Man on Earth or The Omega Man, whichever version you prefer when it comes to that. I kind of prefer The Omega Man, but I know Last Man on Earth is much more faithful to the Matheson. This one really has a lot of shades of The World, the Flesh, and the Devil, which was a film from, I want to say, the the mid-50s with Harry Belafonte, Inger Stevens, and Mel Farrar. Yeah, 1959 it was. And that one is kind of neat because it's almost is the quiet earth on its head a little bit as far as... We meet the black guy first. We meet Harry Belafonte. He's our main character through this. And then we meet the woman. We meet Inger Stevens. And we have their relationship and everything. And with that, it seems like it's more of the racial thing comes up between those two. Um, that she does a kind of a throwaway line for her. You know, I'm free white and 21. I can make up my own mind or whatever. And that just stings Harry Belafonte completely. And then we get Mel Farrar later on coming in. And again, the love triangle kind of coming into place. And that one, the end of it is just really kind of weird like it ends with a whimper rather than with a bang uh like the quiet earth but it's uh it's an interesting film now keith i know you said that you'd seen that in the past what did you remember of the the world of flesh and the devil well what i remembered of it and it has been a lot of years but i i didn't remember being as enamored of it as i am of the quiet earth because i felt like the racial politics felt way more on the nose to me in a way that was much less interesting, you know. Um, and and as and I the, yeah, the ending sort of I don't remember the ending, which is a bad sign. I mean, I, I, the ending of Quiet Earth is emblazoned on my brain, um, you know. And I remembered exactly what it happened, and I, I actually couldn't tell you what happened at the end of the World of Flesh and the Devil, which is never a great sign. I mean, I remember thinking it was interesting, but I don't remember being excited about it and and yes they're very similar i mean there's definitely I mean, you could certainly watch those two films back to back and that would probably be a fascinating experiment because certainly there's a great i mean in that main relationship as you say it's like one is sort of the, the inverse of the other but i feel like my memory at least is that quiet earth is a, is a far more subtle examination of everything there issue issues of race society sexual I, world of flesh and devil felt much more kind of do you get it but, you know, I, I'm, if you guys have seen it more recently, I'm curious if you have the same feeling. I'll tell you that five minutes after the movie ended, I said, wait, how did that end? Really doesn't stick with you. Do you think that that's just by nature of the era in which it was made? Because you said it was in the 50s, right? Some of that stuff in that era is really heavy-handed and has a lot of really overly melodramatic stuff if you look at those films but at the same time you just explaining it to me as okay here's your lead and then there's this racial tension stuff i'm sure in 1959 they thought hey we're cutting edge we're hip with this thing because you know this is a pre-civil rights struggle i mean there's some of that going on but they must have thought hey you know we're uh we're we're on the uh, the avant-garde with this one it was funny how often they get harry belafonte to sing 
<laughs> End of Ouch. the world movie. Yeah, yeah. There are some interesting parallels. There's this whole thing where he's alone in the world and he moves up from, I can't remember where, but he goes up to New York City because he figures if there's going to be anybody anywhere, it's going to be New York. So he moves up there and at one point, kind of like how uh, Zach goes through his quote-unquote shopping spree and he gets the stuffed ostrich and all the other goodies and brings them back to his place harry belafonte does the same thing and he picks up all these mannequins and he has these mannequins are hanging around him which having just seen tourist trap is really fucking creepy to see all these mannequins hanging around (laughs) and he's got the one mannequin that he calls snodgrass and he basically treats snodgrass it's kind of interesting he treats snodgrass like an employee and he just will you know come up to him like he's snodgrass's boss kind of berate him and talk to him about how i don't like you you're always smiling all this kind of stuff what's so funny i'm lonely and you're laughing do you know what it means to be sick in your heart from loneliness you don't care do you no sense no feeling you look at me but you don't see me you don't see me and you wouldn't care if you did out you go my friend we've been together too long and you've laughed at me once too often and at one point he picks up snodgrass and throws him out a window and that's what finally gets inger stevens to reveal herself as she sees this body fly out of the window and land on the, the middle of the street and she screams out thinking that belafonte had killed himself but yeah there's um it is pre-civil rights kind of stuff so it, it, it is interesting to see the way that that plays out i think belafonte more than Sidney potier was like a a safe black man at this point. I don't necessarily know why. Maybe the Caribbean kind of thing. Go ahead, Keith. Still, there wasn't a lot of romance going on. We did not cross the color line when it came to, like, you know, him and Inger Stevens definitely hooking up. There was just more the tension there, and then there was also the tension when Mel Farrar came into the show. But it, it was... Again, it was kind of muted. Like at one point, she was the Inger Stevens is complaining to Belafonte, like you don't do anything, like you never act, you you take too long to do stuff, and basically he is allowing Mel Ferrar to come into the picture, but he's allowing him to come in, but then he's also a little bit of a threat to Ferrar, and really Ferrar is just too. He's not confident enough to kind of move into the situation. But Ferrar, he's really, really good in this performance. This is probably the best performance that I've seen him give because I'm used to more of like his performance in The Visitor, where he was much more like an automaton in that film. And I've kind of seen him do that similar, like, I don't know, malignant kind of performance. And in this, I almost didn't recognize him, especially because when he shows up at first, he's um, wearing this big beard and everything. But when he shaves and I'm like, oh, it's Mel Farrar, he uh, really does a great job. I mean, the thing that's funny is you saying that he's not threatening is Harry, Harry Belafonte would go on to be, you know, a big uh, supporter, obviously, of civil rights movement and activist and all of that stuff. So it's kind of funny that you're like, I don't know, maybe at this time he wasn't threatening because I guess maybe a few years later he would have been. I don't know. Well, yeah, he was much more he was much more political certainly than Poitier was in terms of being out there being aggressively political. 
But I, I get what you're saying in terms of perception, which doesn't always go with the reality of who people are. It would make a good double feature, but I have to say that The Quiet Earth definitely has a, a, a much more Im- impactful experience than this one. The other one you mentioned earlier was Night of the Comet, and uh, I don't believe I've seen that. So can you kind of uh, lay out what you see as the connections there? Oh, baby, you are in for a treat, man. Night of the Comet is amazing. That's an end-of-the-world film where if you happen to be surrounded by metal, you survive when this comet goes overhead. And this comet, it's very similar to like Day of the Triffids, where there's this big light show in the sky kind of thing. And rather than Triffids attacking when the comet goes over, basically everybody just turns to red dust. People who weren't necessarily 100% protected are zombies so there's it's kind of a zombie film but kind of not and it's kind of an end of the world film but kind of not and our good friend mary warnoff shows up at one point and the guy who played chakotay on star trek voyager is in there who is also an eating raul so yeah there's like so many great actors in this film and it's kind of got like a you know a real nice 80 80s vibe going to it and Catherine Mary Stewart is just like kicking ass in it and and the woman that plays her sister also is definitely one movie that I would love to do on the show someday well now I want to see it you haven't seen it I've never seen it Oh, you are in for a treat as well. It will be like um, Alan Alda and Alan Burstyn, and we'll meet here one year from now, and we'll cover <laughs> we'll cover Night of the Comet. <laughs> well, I don't know if they have anything that brilliant to say about it, but the other thing that this reminded me of, even though they're not that similar in story, but there were moments that it echoed to me, and maybe it was tonal, was, was on the beach. There was something in, in that film sort of... I don't know, like maybe it's the scene where they go to, I guess it's San Francisco, and they think there's a radio signal, and they find nothing there. That reminded me of sort of the the inverse of his radio signals going out to an empty world. But really, they're quite different stories, and that that's a whole society, and it's a whole society facing death, and it's really movie about grief and loss. But but somehow that came up for me a lot when I was watching it. But I wish I had something really pithy to say about why that was. Is on the beach? Is that set in Australia? Yes, it is set in Australia. Yeah, the idea was that there was like a nuclear war between the Americans and the Russians, and the entire rest of the world has been shrouded by this nuclear cloud that's killed off everybody. And Australia is the only place left that there's people alive, and this cloud is slowly closing in, and they're all, they are all—they know that they're all doomed. There's like nothing they can do, and when the cloud gets there, they're all going to die. And Gregory Peck plays an American submarine commander whose submarine happened to have been docked there during the war, so he survived, and he and his crew go out to try. They, there's this radio signal coming from, I think, in San Francisco, and they think, well, maybe there's somebody there, and, and, and uh, they get there, but it's just, it's just somebody's rigged up something so that it keeps, when the wind blows, it makes a, a little Morse code signal to go out, but the person's long since dead. I haven't seen it in a few years, but it's, uh, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting film, and it's a very dark and sad film. So I hadn't thought about it in a long time. And watching Quiet Earth, I thought, oh, yeah, I'd like to see that again. That's funny. We covered um, Miracle Mile last week, and one of the lines in the script that's kind of just a throwaway line is somebody asking, has anybody read On the Beach? It's in the air. <laughs> so let's go ahead and take a break, and we'll play a preview for next week's show. Imagine a world without nations, a society that has abolished love and hate, aggression and individuality and replace them with the most fantastic entertainment of all time. 
It is more than a game. It is Rollerball. James Conn, John Houseman. Rollerball. Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parent. That's right. We're continuing to explore the apocalypse. Next week, we take a look at a film that takes place after the corporate wars. Rollerball. So strap on your skates and get ready to bash some heads and uh, maybe blow up some trees. But before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host once again, Keith Gordon. Now, Keith, last time you were on, Mother Night, and we uh, had a great conversation about that. What's been keeping you busy these days? Well, I've been trying to come up with uh, something to create this effect that will create the end of the world and uh, leave me alone. And the best thing, the very best thing of all, is there's time now. There's all the time I need and all the time I want. Time, time, time. Ah, there's time enough at last. Uh, I'm, you know, doing the same thing, trying to get my little independent films made. At the same time, directing a lot of TV. I'm about to leave to do a couple episodes of Fargo. Um, I'm gonna, after that, I'll go off and do Homeland and then The Leftovers for HBO. Uh, all of which are shows that I really like and really happy to be working on. And then in between that, I'm out sort of still trying to beat the bush to do my own projects. And, uh, you know, kind of lucky enough to be able to make a good living doing interesting stuff and still chase my own dreams. Are you still working on that project that Nolan was supposed to produce? I mean, technically, I mean, there's not much going on with it right now. Um, so I've sort of moved on from that. You know, it's not dead, but it's it's not very active. He's very tied up in other things. A lot of the executives who were the executives on it aren't there anymore. So, you know, it, it's sort of in that Hollywood limbo state, and it may come back to life. It may never come back to life. I don't have the, the weight to be the one to kind of get it going. So uh, I'm sort of moving on with things, and hopefully at some point it will resurface itself. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that you're uh, doing Fargo. I've heard nothing but good things about that show. Well, I love the first season, and um, I, I hope—I mean, I hope they can keep up at the same level because it was—it was great. I mean, I was, to be honest, wildly skeptical. Um, you know, it, I, I thought, "Why you're really naming a TV series out of Fargo? What a silly idea!" And then I read Noah Frawley's first script that he wrote, the pilot of the first season, and I thought, "Actually, this is pretty impressive." And then when I saw what they did with it, it was—it was wonderful. I mean, I think it's that rare thing where you have a, a TV series spin off from a film, and, and arguably be as good as the film that, that it's, it's leaping off from. And that's a hell of an accomplishment with, you know, you're talking about an amazing film by, some, by two of our best filmmakers. Uh, but I feel like the series really managed to stay at that kind of level. I know you've been working on that other project uh, for the last couple of years. And as you said, it, it's uh, kind of in a stalled stage. It's still there. Glad to hear finally that um, your friend on Mother Night, Bob Whitey, is uh, putting out the Kickstarter and trying to finish off the uh, Kurt Vonnegut uh, documentary. And I was uh, happy to throw a few dollars his way on that. Oh, that's great. Yeah. No, I, I can't wait to see that thing. I, I'm, I'm, uh, he's, it's literally been a lifetime project for him. I mean, he's been working on it. 20 years, 25 years, maybe longer. And it will certainly be the definitive piece on Vonnegut, I would think. So I'm very excited because I've only seen little bits and pieces and scenes and elements. I've never seen the whole thing put together. And so uh, I think it will be an amazing film. And, you know, I'm I'm glad it's finally going to happen. Because I think it's, for anybody who's a Vonnegut fan, I think it's going to be quite quite a treat. It's going to have a lot of stuff that would not be in your normal documentary because, they are such close friends. They, you know, they were they were so bonded that I have a feeling Kirk was open with him in a way that you know you wouldn't have gotten in some more standard documentary. Well, thanks again, Keith, for coming on. It is always a real pleasure talking with you, sir. 
Well, I was delighted to be here. I had a great time. I always love joining you guys. Uh, I love talking about movies, and you pick interesting ones. So, and you guys have great things to say. So, I'm happy to join in whenever you want. Just so folks know, I sent Keith a list of uh, films. God, probably what, like six, eight months ago, something crazy like that. And you were like, actually, probably longer than that, because I think that um, Love and Death was on that list. And you're like, yep, I want that one. And mm-hmm. I want Quiet Earth. And I don't remember if you picked a third or not. So it was just like, okay, so this show has been a long time in the making. So I'm glad that all of our schedules actually lined up and we were able to do this. Yeah. So it's always good to hear from you, sir. And I'm glad that things are going well for you. Well, thank you. So I also want to thank Professor Rayner, Sam Pillsbury, and Jeff Murphy for being on the show. And thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to thank us, go over to iTunes or wherever you hear the podcast. Leave us a review, some stars, whatever. And really, the next thing that we can ask you to do is spread the word. Helps keep us out there in the world and staves off the apocalypse.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.